You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 463. Yeah, he's Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of March, 2021. In today's episode, we learn more about the abrupt maneuvers which caused injuries on an American Airlines jet. A Frontier flight attendant spots incomplete de-icing before takeoff. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the hover cushion glide air vehicle thing. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 463 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today... From his studio in the pastoral English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines, it's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Uh, Just the two of us, it seems, at least for a while. Um, It's great to be back on the show, and a very quick shout-out to my ancient brother, Christopher, who is a Canadian living in Vancouver and has just turned 74. Oh, happy birthday to him. Yay. Vancouver, I love British Columbia. Beautiful place. Oh, he ate, that's why he's a Canadian now. He moved out there. He was a grand engineer, uh, and he loved it so much. He uh, married a lovely Canadian lady, had two wonderful children, and uh, is now a, a, what do they call them, naturalized Canadian? Hmm. Nothing natural about him, though. <laughs> Except for maybe his odor. <laughs> All right. Without <laughs> further ado, let's uh, let's hit the news. Stand by for news. You know what? I'm going to switch it up, Nick. I hope you don't mind me throwing a wrench into this whole thing, but I don't know. It's, uh, I, I feel like, you know, it's been a while since we've done a show uh, due to my illness. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking maybe let's, I, I'd like to do a piece of feedback if you don't mind. Is that all right? Uh, okay. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. Max Truscott here. In your show last week, I learned that you and I work for Micah on his two podcasts. Yes. I'm a co-host of his <laughs> other show, the Airplane Geeks podcast. And of course, we're just kidding, Micah. I also host the Aviation News Talk podcast focused on general aviation. 
Last week, Captain Nick's old plane tales inspired me to think about tales of future planes for each member of the APG crew. So here's what I imagine that each of you will be flying in a post-pandemic or maybe even a post-retirement world. Each of these aircraft is very different, yet they all share something in common. So as I read the list, see if you can figure out what they have in common besides being your future ride. The first plane is for Captain Nick. As a former fighter pilot, I can just see him suiting up again to this time fly an F-5 advanced Tiger fighter jet that's been upgraded with all of the latest goodies. And if you're wondering where he could fly one of these, well, a company called Tactical Air Support, or TACAIR for short, which is a defense contractor, has a fleet of about 20 F-5s that they use to fly in adversarial support roles. So I just imagine him taking joy in dogfighting again and perhaps shooting down some young hotshot pilot. The next plane is for Dr. Steph. As a marathon runner, I'm sure she'll want to be stepping up to fly a lean, efficient jet that gets the job done. And that would be my favorite aircraft, the Cirrus Vision Jet. I like it because it's a well-thought-out design that's both elegant and efficient. And with its huge windshield, the view out the front is really the best I've ever seen in any light jet or turboprop. Miami Rick is already used to flying precious cargo, so I imagine him flying a different kind of cargo in the Cessna Longitude. That business jet is the top of Cessna's product line, and it carries 12 passengers at flight level 450 at 483 knots. I imagine that NetJets would be happy to hire Rick to fly VIP cargo around in these jets. And finally, for Captain Jeff, I imagine an aircraft that's fast, but which also has excellent short field performance, so that someday, far off in the distant future and retirement, he can easily get in and out of virtually every little airport to perhaps seek out the best microbreweries. And that aircraft would be the French-built TBM 940, which TBM says is the fastest single-engine turboprop on the market. Ooh, la, la. Oh, and I should mention that I just released a brand new book that each of you will find helpful in flying your future aircraft. So now, what do you think all of these aircraft have in common? Jeff already knows the answer, so he's not allowed to guess. Thanks so much for letting me join you today to help plan your future. Okay. So, Nick, you're the only one that <laughs> I can ask because <laughs> no pressure, uh, everybody man. else is gone. What What do all these... Uh, these airplanes have in common, do you think? Well, Max, uh, I mean, they're all wildly different, aren't they? The uh, F-5 Tiger sounds fantastic. Uh, the Cirrus I, I've seen, uh, and it is uh, just a superb little uh, light, small airplane. Uh, P P PBM or a TBM? TBM. Uh, 940. TBM, is it? Mm -hmm. uh, it's fresh. Oh, um, la, la. And it's a turboprop. So I'm going... Yeah, 12-seater. I can't really see the link, except perhaps, and I think Max might have dropped a clue there when he was talking about the Tiger, uh, that it has all the latest whistles and bells. So it probably has a really fancy glass cockpit. And I know the Cirrus does as well. And I'm assuming that uh, a fast turboprop uh, that you might need uh, would also need a, a very nice, fancy glass copy. So do they have uh, something in common in the instrumentation? <laughs> wow. What's that then? That's a hint right there. <laughs> oh, we have, Liz says there are a couple of guesses in the in the chat room. Um, G1000? G1, uh, mm, Jeff says. No. Sounds a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? No, G1000, that's so yesterday, isn't it? Antiquated, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, we all like the latest toys, don't we? Yes. And guess what? 
What they have in common is they all have the brand new G3000 and G5000. I think mostly the G3000. And uh, Max Trescott has written a new book. And you know what? Nobody has heard of this book until right now here on the show. He has honored us at the APG to be the world exclusive launch customer of his brand new book, G5, or G3000 and G5000 Glass Cockpit handbook and uh man i mean doesn't this normally happen in a great big bookstore oh i suppose with covid you can't really have no. a, a grand unveiling wheel. that would be such but, a letdown really because you know how many bookstores <laughs> have a bunch of aviation geeks walking around but hey we have a whole bunch of uh, aviation geeks watching and listening uh, to us and um i just wish that uh I, well, hang on wait a minute what is this i'm seeing here in my in my window um Huh. Oh, you know what that means? That's our our guest music. So uh, Max Trescott is a glass cockpit guru. He can be heard each week on his top-rated aviation news talk podcast and as co-host on the Airplane Geeks podcast. He holds four, count them, ATP certificates and was named the 2008 National CFI of the Year. Welcome, Max Trescott. Hello, APG crew. Hi, Max. <laughs> so nice to be here. This is quite an honor to be with you, gentlemen. I feel like I'm with the uh, the dean of uh, aviation podcasting. Oh no, not no. You're talking about Max, uh, the other, you know, the other Max. He's the dean. <laughs> I just well, follow in his footsteps. Both have been doing it. Yeah. Yeah, well, so nice to have you with us, Max. Uh, Max contacted me a few weeks ago and mentioned that he is uh, about to launch this brand new book and uh, virtual book tour, and uh, he uh, thought it'd be kind of cool to do it on our show. And uh, we we're so, as I said, so honored that um, he was able to do that. And um, I also decided that you know what, I don't want to waste all this talent by just sitting there in the wings waiting for him to come on during the feedback section of the show. So I figured let's go ahead and get this um, out of the way up front so that he can uh, join us when we talk a little bit about news. And don't don't worry, we're going to talk more about Max's new book, the G3000 and G5000 Glass Cockpit Handbook, during our Getting to Know Us segment later in the show. So without further ado, I guess, do we play the news thing again yeah why not stand by for news wow wait a minute look at this i just noticed there's somebody else that's joining wow this is just turning to to be an amazing show hey steph Hi, Jeff. Hi, Max. <laughs> Hi, Nick. Hello there. So this is, this is a surprise for Steph. Perfect she had timing. no idea. And I did not know. Nick only knew just a few minutes before we started today's show. So, um, yeah. And I have a feeling the kind of airplanes that Steph flies, uh, this is going to be much more applicable. So can't wait yeah, to I need talk a copy about of that. No. <laughs> yeah. All right. Very good. So, um, Steph, uh, welcome. And we just hit the news sounder, and we're going to go ahead and start with the news, if that's all right with you. Uh, let's do it. Sorry for being tardy. Oh, no Sounds problem. Like a good plan. Perfect timing. 
Okay. Uh, the first item in the news notebook is accident American Boeing 757-200. Registration November 173, Alpha November, performing flight 279 from Edinburgh, um, Edinburgh, uh, or Edinburgh. Edinburgh. And Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh. Well, you know, I saw, I saw SC there and I'm thinking it must be South Carolina, so it must be Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> So no, probably how we would pronounce it. I don't I know. even know if that town exists in South Carolina, so, but yeah, that yeah. does make sense. Okay, no. Edinburgh um, in the UK to Scotland. New York, Scotland yes. to uh, oh, that's what the SC stands for. Uh, New York, so, uh, yes. John F. Kennedy. That's why we have Nick uh, with us, Max, so he can straighten us out with all that <laughs> European stuff. And yeah, I didn't uh, know SC either. <laughs> Let's see, 113 people on board was descending toward New York's JFK airport when the aircraft experienced an abrupt maneuver causing a number of flight attendants who were still clearing the cabin for landing to fall and receive injuries. One of them received multiple bone fractures. The aircraft continued for a safe landing at uh, 13.01 local time. One flight attendant was taken to a hospital with serious injuries. Five flight attendants received minor injuries. The occurrence aircraft remained on the ground in JFK for 31 hours before returning to service. And uh, let's see, the Aviation Herald learned about this occurrence on the 9th of February, 2019. Uh, neither FAA nor NTSB databases showed the occurrence. Uh-oh, a little bit of a slap on the hand there, I think, to American. The source reported the aircraft was a few minutes from landing in clear weather and sunshine when the aircraft pitched up and down violently. Uh, possibly as a result of wake turbulence. Flight attendants were still up to prepare the cabin for landing. The passenger seatbelt signs were already illuminated, and the passengers had already fastened their seatbelts. In the late evening of February 12, 2019, the NTSB indicated they were investigating the occurrence. And uh, so anyway, they um, on the 27th of February of this year, the reason why we're talking about this, um, the NTSB opened their docket. And there are several items in the docket, um, one of which is the uh, cockpit voice recorder transcript. And also, let's see, what's the other one that I ended up uh, putting in here? Um, I don't see it, but uh, oh, flight attendant statements. And uh, But there are some other um, PDFs or um, transcripts as well in the docket. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about this is that uh, when... Uh, the airplane was um, on descent. There were some um, there were some changes uh, given uh, instructions given by the uh, air traffic control to uh, descend to a certain altitude. They were making that transition between above ten thousand and below ten thousand feet. And um, I was I was hoping that we'd have Rick with us because he could kind of share a little bit more about the different uh, the various modes of the Boeing seven fifty seven and seven sixty seven. But um, apparently, flight change mode, uh, flight level change mode was used to descend to seven thousand feet, and uh, the throttle auto throttle system um, ended up reducing or the throttles to idle, and they stayed there. And at some point, the jump seater who was in the cockpit noticed that the the speed, because the uh, captain at this, at this point was um, briefing the um, approach, an RNAV approach into uh, Kennedy, and uh, he noticed that the uh, airspeed was quite low, and uh, the jump seater said something like airspeed, watch your speed, or something like that, and then he basically yelled it. 
And that really got the captain's attention and um, the startle factor and everything else. I think he uh, disconnected the autopilot to try to um, recover the airplane, pushed the throttles up, and uh, the surge of power and acceleration and everything else happened all at once. And um, even though in the transcripts he talks about, or his interview, he talks about trying to be mindful of the fact that um, he that he needs to be careful with manual control at this point, uh, because you can definitely overdo it. And um, apparently that's what happened here. He over-controlled the airplane. It was very, very abrupt with the flight controls and trying to react to the acceleration of the engines and bringing back the speed and a lot more details um, that I'm not mentioning at this point. But um, that's how the uh, flight attendants were injured in the back. Um, and um, let's see, where where do I go next with this? You want to talk about maybe the um, the flight attendant report, Nick? Do you think that might be a good place? Yeah, to- I was just going to comment a little bit on what you said. Um, mm-hmm. They're approaching a point on the arrival where they need to be uh, at a constraint. So 12,000 feet and 250 knots. Normally it's 250 knots below 10, but I think that constraint uh, required them to slow. So they're slowing a, a little earlier than would normally be uh, perhaps required. Um, and uh, it, it, for me, it's an odd moment to choose to brief. Uh my briefings, uh, no, I'm a long-haul pilot, or used to be. So, um, you know, we had plenty of time. It wasn't like we had uh, – but this guy's come all the way across from Edinburgh. So yeah, this wasn't like same. a regional flight where it's been, <laughs> yeah. you know, 35 minutes since they departed Atlanta, and now they're arriving in Charlotte or something. It's Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I used to start my briefing about 20 minutes before the top of descent. And because things get quite busy is when you get in the terminal area, and it's very hard to conduct a proper briefing. Uh, if um, you know you're you're rushed and you're in the middle of trying to do stuff, so um, I, I'm not unsure why he chose that moment or left it to that moment to do to do his briefing. So a couple of points there. Um, the next area, perhaps you are, you asked me to talk about, was uh, what the um, cabin attendant uh, noticed. So um, the cabin attendant said that 20 minutes before landing, uh, she was standing in her galley with the number three. Uh, all of a sudden, the plane moved erratically down and then sharply up and accelerated. Uh, all the galley inserts came, that's, you know, all the stuff that's, uh, the the galley is like a a framework, uh, uh, and inside this frame are slotted lots of boxes. Uh, there are great big ones on the floor level that you see going up and down the aisles, uh, full of um, food and cutlery and all this all that they required. And they usually double sided, so you can take them out, turn around, and slide them back in and lock them in position. And there are big, um, fancy sliding. Um, locks that secure them on the ones at head height um they're often just smaller sliding ones again but they're all sort of locked in but when they're the cabin crew are using the galley they they've often got these in a position where they can take them out easily and, and the last thing they do when they secure the galley area is to make sure everything's stowed away and then they lock all these in position so uh they she said um 
the galley inserts came flying out, and because they're head height or even above head height, and they're big metal aluminium containers, often full of quite heavy stuff. So uh, it's it's a big danger. Um, they came, they put their arms up to try and catch them, but most fell onto the ground. Uh, she said she didn't know what uh, happened. There was no communication from the flight deck at this point. Uh, well, it's only just happened, so I'm guessing that would probably be normal. Uh, and at this point, I tried to make my way back to the main cabin to check on my crew. Uh, what I saw in the back of the aircraft startled me. The amount of debris that had been thrown into the aisle and galley was astonishing. All the flight attendants reported being thrown to the ceiling and then onto the ground. So indicates to me that the aircraft had gone uh, close to negative G or perhaps into a, a, a an area of negative G. So, um, yeah, everything would fly up. And then when you reapply positive G, everything comes crashing back down again. Um, the number four flight attendant was still lying uh, in the galley with obvious injuries to her wrist in a great deal of pain. About 10 minutes after the accident, the captain called not to ask if we were okay, but to ask if he could make his arrival PA, his uh, personal address. So um, at this point, I asked him what the hell had happened and that we had multiple injuries and we're going to need ambulances to meet the flight. He said the, uh, the plane slowed down, so we had to speed up. And that moment was when the autopilot disengaged. So um, she said it was not a turbulence event. It was something the cockpit intentionally did, and she called it an evasive manoeuvre. Uh, she goes on to describe that paramedics met the flight. All the flight attendants except myself were transported to a hospital. I chose uh, to go home and see my own physician. The flight crew stayed in the cockpit while we were taken off the plane. They never came out to assess what had happened or the condition of the crew. I told the captain I was going home to seek medical attention, and he wrote down my cell phone number and provided me with uh, his and directed me to contact him before filling out any reports that, so that we could get our stories straight and make sure we tell the company the same thing. Uh, I'm duty-bound to do that sort of thing. Uh, I'm only stating the facts of what happened on the airplane as I saw it. I think actually uh, duty-bound not to do that. You know, to do nothing of the sort. Right? Oh, I'm yeah, I'm duty bound to do nothing of the sort. My apologies. You're quite right. Uh, I put the wrong emphasis there. there um, she said, uh, I would like to have had a critical, critical incident stress debrief about this incident with all the crew members, which is something that our airline used to do. If ever we'd had an incident that involved the crew and, and we probably needed to talk about it and uh, let everyone express uh, where they were and what had happened. Uh, that's usually done after the passengers disembarked before we finally got off the airplane. And she wanted one of those uh, meetings with all the crew members, including the flight deck present, but obviously that didn't happen. The flight attendants deserve to know what caused this, and they need to be given the tools to deal with the obvious, obvious stress of the event, which I think she's actually being surprisingly even-handed uh, with her comments there. I don't think um, she's trying to make something out of nothing here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Steph. No, I was going to say, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I just, of all of that, I find it interesting that, um, at least per the flight attendant re uh, reports, um, that the 
flight crew in particular, the captain was wanting to have everyone on the exact same page in terms of, of stories and whatnot. To me, that just, that doesn't sit very well. It smacks you know. of self-preservation and lack of concern Indeed. for my fellow humans that I'm responsible exactly. for. That's I agree with you, except for the word "max" you just used there. Oh, no, "smacks." I'm sorry, "smacks." <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh, "smacks." Okay. <laughs> That's sort of, uh, Good point. No, no, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely, totally spot on. I mean, I mean, this. I don't think the captain even understands that. You know, if all the stories are identical, then people know that you know it's not the right story that they you know all got together. Because if even everybody reports everything as they saw it, yeah, the stories are going to be a little bit different. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. It's really sad to think of somebody who's just thinking about their own skin, mm-hmm. trying to protect themselves. I mean, you're you're in a service business. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be, you know, serving your crew, serving the public. And, you know, obviously he was more concerned about himself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right, um, Max. And um, I, I don't know. I, I'm a great believer in if you come clean and explain what happened, even if it was something that could be an incident like this where he perhaps came very close to stalling the aircraft and mishandled. If you What'd put you your hands up and go, oh, I, 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 that was a really bad situation. I allowed the airplane to get away from me. I overcorrected with the controls. Uh, and, you know, it was an absolute shock to me. And I, I, I did not do my job very well. But in the light of that, if he had gone and sorted out his crew, sorted out the passengers, make sure that, um, uh, you know, he had his crew's best interests at heart and he did his best to deal with that. Instead of sitting in the cockpit trying to get the story straight with the other two pilots, uh, and by that time when they left the cockpit, uh, I think, you know, the, the back of the aircraft had been more or less sorted with. I think people would have had a huge amount of sympathy for him. Yeah, I, yeah, I and I, I, think the, um, I think the outcome would have been potentially quite different you know the uh, i think the flight attendants would have not been felt so put out and I, as i was reading through it at least from the captain's statements it almost or from the flight attendant statements even it almost seems like the flight crew was just very unaware of how abrupt that maneuvering was and the potential it could have caused for injury um like yeah. they just it's, didn't it's, realize it in the moment like oh we have to do this did that okay taken care of hey can we make our um arrival pa now and they're going uh what? yeah were you going to address what just happened? Why you, you know? Yeah, the passengers must have been wondering what the hell was oh, going sure. on as well. Yeah, not just the, the flight attendants. Because they're seeing the flight attendants being thrown around, all the complete mess that was in the back of their brain. They must have been waiting for someone to explain what happened. And I mean, in his interview, he was mindful of the fact that his his actions um, by manipulating the controls when the autopilot disengaged. Uh, he he understood that he had to be careful with it. But to Steph's point, um, when you're sitting at the pointy end of the airplane, people that are in the tail of the airplane have a completely different experience when it comes to what we are doing with the flight control surfaces. And it's especially amplified in an airplane such as the 757. And uh, yeah. Long uh, and skinny. Yep. Long They're and skinny. a long ways and, away from the, the pointy end there. Right. Um, and, and I used to be long and skinny. <laughs> Not anymore. As you know. I used to be skinny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, we'll we'll include uh, links to the uh, the docket, and you can read the um, transcript. But again, you're going to see as we have that that the the general un- underlying theme here was this 62 year old pilot. You know, I'm a 60 year old 
two-year-old pilot as well, getting close to retirement, thinking about preserving whatever he can to stick it out until 65 or whatever, um, is, is prominent in his mind and not the things that should have been prominent in his mind and in his actions. So there you go. Yep. We were thoroughly disgusted. Not a lot of sympathy for him, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Nope. Can you imagine how that crew is going to feel flying with him again? Oh, man. I'm thinking that maybe I was looking at some comments after the to happened in September of 2018. He's awfully close to so 65. mandatory retirement yeah. age. And I would not be surprised that if at some point between this incident and now and that he has been in COVID, that he has been encouraged to um, take an early out. Yeah, but I don't know that. You know, it, uh, interesting you're saying about what happens at the front of the airplane and the back of the airplane, Chef. When I was uh, quite a uh, young first officer, um, we had four pilots going into Hong Kong, and uh, one of the cabin crew was desperate to see the approach. So uh, I said, "Oh, don't worry, you come up." Uh, you know, I was only a relief first officer, so I said, "You come up and grab my jump seat. I'll go down the back of the airplane and sit on your cabin seat." because we had a, a spare one down the back there that didn't involve any uh, special duties that I wouldn't have known how to do. <laughs> so anyway, I went down the back of this uh, 340, and um, we're making the standard checkerboard approach into Kitek. And I'm not kidding. Um, the, the, we were going up and down so much uh, that the kids in the back, because there was a lot of school kids in the back, like, they were ding. putting their arms in the air like, <laughs> like they're, they're a on a roller coaster. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was sitting there hanging on to the sides of my seat going, whoa. You know, and literally it was going plus one and a half to about plus a half. You know, you really were lifting off your seat. And uh, when we got on the ground, I uh, all the passengers had gone. I went back up the front and said, "Wow, what was uh, what was happening on that approach?" And they all looked at me like I was mad. They said nothing. It was fine perfectly no yeah. normal. <laughs> perfectly normal. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly right. That the tail of that airplane really did move around a lot. Yeah. All right. Um, spent a lot on on that one, but I think it was worth it. Um, the second item, this is an interesting one, I think. Uh, this happened in Birmingham, England on the 8th of September of 2020. Uh, a Ryanair Boeing 737-800 registration EIDPC e performing flight 3902 from Malta to Birmingham uh, with 35 passengers, six crew, landed on Birmingham's runway 33 at 2325 local time, night, dark and vacated the runway. A Jet 2, Boeing 737-800, registration Golf Golf Delta Foxtrot Romeo, performing flight 1244 from Chennai, Greece, to Birmingham, with 181 passengers and six crew landed on Birmingham's runway 33 at 2327, so just a couple of minutes later. Uh, they vacated the runway and reported that they may have seen something on the runway in the touchdown zone. They were not sure whether it was an object or something with the runway markings. Following that report, the crew of Echo India Delta Papa Charlie commented that they may also have seen something just after the touchdown markers. A uh, TUI Airways Boeing 757-200 registration Golf Oscar Oscar Bravo Alpha performing. I love that registration. <laughs> Gooba. Gooba. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're such a Gooba. 
uh, flights yeah, at <laughs> seven fifty five from uh, Antalya. Is that right? Uh, Turkey to yeah, Birmingham right. with one hundred ninety passengers. Nate crew was on final approach to the same runway when air traffic control queried whether they had heard the previous transmissions and whether they were happy to continue. <laughs> are you happy to continue? That's are you happy to British, continue? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like phraseology. Absolutely. Yeah. The crew going, replied really? in the affirmative and continued the approach touching down at yeah, 2329, uh, which was about two minutes after the previous aircraft. The aircraft vacated the runway. The crew reported they had seen a large object, possibly a ladder on the runway in the touchdown zone just to the right of the center line. Tower subsequently ordered a runway inspection, which covered recovered a seven-foot A-frame step ladder from the runway. Now, I do have um, something for us to look at, um, a nice little, uh, some photographs of this. And uh, wow, <laughs> you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's uh, not something you'd want to see on a well, runway. And the, and the question I had, there's such a great photograph of that uh, you know, step ladder. It's like, did they go out there and go, Oh, let's take a few pictures of this before we take it off the runway. <laughs> that's what I'm I would do. Sure if I was doing did, the runway Max. inspection, I'd be yeah. Oh, yep. That's exactly where it was. Picture. I, I think yep. the team that went out there to pick it up, grabbed now their they, phones and went, Oh yeah, I'll have a picture of that. Boy, oh boy. They did the, of course, uh, it looks very obvious there in the lights of the, um, yeah. inspection vehicle, but, uh, but in the dark, so. you're not going to see that. So I was, I, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, um, maybe they didn't, the way they uh, secured the thing to the truck, the pickup truck, that uh, maybe it wasn't obvious that the ladder wasn't there. Well, then I looked at how they actually <laughs> fix. Secured it. This secured is a reenactment this. photo, by the way. <laughs> and I'm looking at it and go, well, that <laughs> should have been it. obvious that there was no ladder there uh, on the truck. And it was just like bungee cords. Um, one bungee cord. One bungee cord <laughs> strapped around mm -hmm. and secured. I'm thinking that's probably not the best way to secure a ladder on a vehicle that is on an active runway. Mm -hmm. I think everybody agrees with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I now. think, yes. They go to great lengths to explain all the technicalities of how this thing came loose. But I think <laughs> most of us would go, well, that's a dumb idea. Will you stick it on properly or put a net over it or do something? Yeah. Or more bungee straps. I don't know. The question I have out of all this is, if you're the third airplane and they say, oh, yeah, there's a ladder on the runway, and you go, yeah, that's all right, we'll land. <laughs> I mean, what were they thinking? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused as to why after the first aircraft, they're like, there's probably something there in the touchdowns, not like, you know, off to the side, somewhere where no one's possibly going to hit it unless they're doing something really that they're not supposed to be doing. No, touchdown zone. Might be something there. Might be paint, but might be something. I think well, I, and maybe yeah. the Probably third crew was going, well, the first two missed it, so we'll probably be <laughs> yeah. okay. I mean, that's crazy kind of thinking, isn't it? Well, that's like classic how bad things happen, right? Well, it was mm -hmm. okay before, so we'll probably be okay, too. Yeah, yeah it was fine yeah. for the other I, two. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous question to ask the captain. Uh, are you happy to land? And I, I'm going... Well, I, how am I supposed to assess this? I'm about a thousand feet on the ILS and it's at night. How can I possibly tell whether this is actually a danger or not? Um, the air traffic controller, as soon as he realized there was something amiss, should yeah. have closed the runway, gone out and done an inspection, mm -hmm. uh, rather than giving this 
you know, pointless question, really, because what's the average bloke going to say? Uh, perhaps if he'd been really short of fuel, he'd said, no, I've got to land. Uh, but uh, that's in my, most cases, uh, you know, you say, well, I don't know what to do now. Well, Thank I you. think if, it, if you're, <laughs> uh, I think Liz is, so, to me, that's kind of a question. Uh, if I was asked that question, mm, did you hear that? Okay, there might be something on the runway. Do you want to go ahead and I'm like, no, I want you to go take a look at it first and then let me know. Like like Nick said, unless I'm super short on fuel or something, I'm, I'm happy to wait. Well, the AAIB Thanks. in their report did say this. As the third airplane was within four nautical miles of the threshold, Birmingham Mats Part 2 allowed the controller discretion to permit the aircraft to continue as long as the crew wished to do so. The wording given in the manual was deliberately open to prevent any confirmation bias within the operating crew. The crew of uh, Golf Guba uh, commented that the use of the phrase, are you happy to continue, reinforced the impression that there was nothing to be concerned about. Happy is a very positive word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 If they'd said something it's, like two aircraft have possibly reported or p- reported a possible object in the touchdown zone, uh, would you like to go around? then I think the captain would have made a completely different suggestion yes. of uh, action. Or if he'd said, you don't want to land, do you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. framed it in a negative way. I think. Yeah. Are you sure you want to land? Yeah. always go around, right? Always. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you're one of the few airplanes in the sky, it's, it's not going to take long. Ten minutes, no. five minutes, you know. Yeah. Agree. It was nighttime. I don't think there were, there was probably that much traffic. But uh, landing on one of that, doing you know 150 uh, knots, um, that's going to flip up into the aircraft. It would have caused a oh. very expensive amount of damage. I have mm-hmm. no doubt at all if it hit, hit it, and it's so close to the center line that he could easily have hit it. That I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. like you know it was some distance away. Yeah, agreed. All right, moving on. This really. Kind of shocked me. Thanks. <laughs> um, and there was a big discussion on social media last week. Um, and and uh, yeah, uh, let's just talk about it. Uh, Frontier flight attendant spots de-icing issue prevents catastrophic outcome. And this is from the pointsguy.com. Uh, well, this is quite concerning. According to Twitter user John NYC and confirmed by Frontier Airlines, Carrier's former contractor and former contractor at Nashville International Airport reportedly cut some very important corners while performing a critical de-icing last month. De-icing is essential during cold weather operations. Snow and ice on the fuselage and the wings can have significant impact on lift, limiting an aircraft's ability to become airborne. In other words, operating a flight with an aircraft in that condition can be incredibly dangerous. Uh, airlines or their contractors typically remove ice and snow buildup from an aircraft using a special fluid and sometimes apply a second anti-icing liquid as well. That'll help the plane avoid accumulating new buildup as it taxis to the runway. Unfortunately, in this case, last month's Nashville incident, the contractor neglected to complete the de-icing process reportedly because they were low on fluid. Cutting corners during the de-icing process is, of course, a terrible idea. Fortunately for Frontier, a flight attendant spotted a snow and ice-covered wing and alerted the pilots before takeoff, leading the aircraft to return to the gate, where 
it says a foot of snow was discovered on the wings. I guess if you kind of pushed it all together, maybe, but, uh, there was a good, I mean, the, the must be at least an inch or two thickness of, of ice and, uh, snow on the wing. It's hard to tell from this photo, but we're going to put that photo up for everybody here in a minute, but yeah, it's, it's not so much the depth as to the irregularities oh, that uh, yeah. will destroy your lift when you try and get airborne. So even half an inch will have a significant, mm-hmm. even frost, yeah. as we remember from that aircraft that crashed at Farnborough when uh, it had one frost laden wing and one that was nice and clean and uh, turned upside down on takeoff. Because one wing stalled and the other didn't. Uh, oh, so it, even a smaller amount can have a, a disastrous effect. Yes. Here we go. Um, I'll try to enlarge that a little bit so everybody can see it a little bit better. Come on. I deserve that one. Do you do a lot of That's cold this. weather work, Max? And I was just thinking about uh, a rule that has changed in this area. I don't do tons of cold weather work, uh, but yes, I do some. Uh, Years ago here in the United States, the FAA said that if you had frost on the wings, it was acceptable to polish the frost before takeoff, which to me was the nuttiest (laughs) thing I'd ever heard of because nowhere could you find a definition of polishing frost. You know, are we looking for three millimeters depth? Do we want, you know, smoothness and so on? Finally, they've changed it. And I believe now they say must remove all frost before takeoff which <laughs> that was a long overdue change <laughs> but a welcome one <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely you know, you've got to be very clear about this and because it's so easy to interpret it anyway and then leads to a dangerous situation so clearly to me it looks like the fluid that they must have been low on was the type one fluid which actually gets rid of all the white stuff that you see on this frontier wing and then the green stuff that you see there is typically the color of the type four, which is the D uh, or the anti anti icing um, uh, fluid that helps prevent any further buildup of winter precipitate on. Eh, the well, if it's de-ice, anti-ice, that's all the same thing, right? Just dump whatever you got on the wing and hope it works. <laughs> exactly. And if you run out, eh, you know. Eh, it'll, substitute. It'll, it's fine. It's like. It'll probably work out. Oh, yeah, probably. Most, <laughs> probably. Yeah. There you go. Good chance. We've, we've had a lot of interesting, like, you know. Yeah. Language, yeah. But uh, hats off to the cabin crew. Because, yes. uh, you know. And. Uh, I have to also say the flight deck because, um, you know, there are pilots out there and I'm sure they still exist that um, will, you know, poo-poo anything that comes from the cabin. Mm-hmm. They're just cabin crew. You know, they, they they don't know what they're talking about most of the time. So I'm, I'm really impressed with the cabin crew for uh, calling uh, because they're often very worried about interrupting the flight deck you know as you get towards the end of the runway and they they know they're busy mm-hmm. and they could have their heads bitten off um but she called them and well done for the the crew the flight deck for going oh okay well that doesn't sound good let's have it checked because that you know is just really annoying when you're getting towards the end of a in a taxi and you're about to take off and you think oh no come on yeah um, really don't need this. So well done, everybody. Yes. It's a great uh, example of if you see something, say something. It doesn't matter if you're a pilot, if you're a passenger, something doesn't look right. I mean, I can't think of the number of times I've been in the run-up area and I've seen an open baggage door or a seatbelt, you know, hanging out on a closed door. I mean, these things happen often enough that, you know, you just ought to be uh, you know, looking for them because 
<laughs> you, don't, you don't want uh, somebody making a mistake. That they, they happen to everyone sooner or later or eventually. So none of us are immune from those types of things happening. So if it's your turn to have something like that, you know, and someone alerts you to it, just thank you very much. Fix the issue. Um, and in this case, it was it was a big deal. A lot of those things Max brought up are much smaller deals. But um, yeah, it, just just be humble about it and help out the next person who needs needs the help. You mean we're not special and these things don't just happen to other people? I mean, we'd <laughs> yeah. like to think what? that, right? <laughs> yeah, we would like to think it, and it is so wrong. Yes. yes. Now, I don't know what procedures this particular company and their de-ices had, but uh, uh, I'm just trying to get your clue, uh, dear listener, that um, at the end of a de-icing a session when uh, everything's supposed to be good, you are supposed to get a de-icing report from the crew that did the de-icing on your aircraft. That report includes uh, what um, de-icer they used, uh, the mix and the temperature, um, the uh, applications. So did they de-ice and then anti-ice, uh, the de-ice to clear the snow and the anti-ice to then protect the wing. And their final report is to confirm that the all the uh, flying surfaces are clear of snow and ice, uh, and that is an essential part of the report. Yeah, you have to uh, hear that. In other words, they're telling you that they have done the job. And I, I wonder if this lot gave their crew, gave the pilots a report, and if they did what they said, because, you know, uh, well, we gave it a bit of a spray, there's a bit left, but it'll be fine. <laughs> or, yeah. Or what? Yeah, I'd like to... I'm sure they probably gave them what the crew was listening or hearing, you know, listening for and or expecting to hear and uh, were probably completely caught off guard when they got that call from the flight attendant. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, so, it could well have been that way or they may have just walked away and waved because I've seen de-icing crews mm. disappear off to go and do another job or refill their trucks mm -hmm. and the pilots bleating on the radio to our traffic saying i need that crew back because i haven't had my de-icing report mm -hmm. now you know at, at a small where, I don't know where, where this nashville was, uh, tennessee not it's a reasonably sized um airport okay. not a not a little municipal place no then uh, no it's a big it's, city it's a yeah. so you'd expect the, yeah you'd expect them to be able to do and give a proper report. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. So here is a strange one, I think. Missing plane uh, from one mile at a time. Um, fly Armenia 737 diverts to Iran and then goes missing. Um, and the uh, writer of this blog, one mile at a time, says, uh, well, this is without a doubt the most interesting airline story of 2021, even though we actually have no clue what happened. And uh, Fly Armenia Airlines is a fairly new airline based in Yerevan, Armenia. The airline was founded in 2019 and only got its air operator certificate in 2020. The airline has a small fleet consisting of just two 737s. There is one 737-400 that's 31 years old. And there's a 737-300 that's 23 years old. Well, at the moment, the carrier's fleet, at the moment, the carrier's fleet is back down to one plane as the 737-300 has gone missing in Iran. How could that happen? Well, on February 19th, the plane was supposed to fly to Ukraine to undergo maintenance after having been in storage for a while. The plane took off from Tallinn, Estonia, where it had been stored. The destination was supposed to be a place in Ukraine, 
where the plane was supposed to undergo maintenance. For unknown reasons, the plane instead flew to Varna, Bulgaria. This is especially strange because airplanes registered in Armenia are blacklisted from the European Union, so the plane shouldn't have been allowed to fly there. The following day, plans seemingly changed, and the decision was instead made to fly the plane to Sharjah, United Arab Emirates, for maintenance. The plane then, quote, disappeared over Iranian airspace. And interestingly, Tehran had been listed as a diversion point for the pilots. Over Iranian airspace, the crew declared an emergency. Some sources suggest there was a technical issue, while other sources suggest that it was a hijacking. It's worth noting that flight tracking for this aircraft's registration has intentionally been turned off, so it's clear that something was being hidden here, and we're not just talking about when the emergency was declared, but rather from the time the plane took off from Tallinn. Um, Today, the airline posted the following message on Facebook, which really clears everything up. Here we go. Um, From the airline. Dear colleagues, we inform you that today's press conference will not be held. The reason for the delay of the press conference is not to arrive from the Islamic Republic of Iran. We apologize. <laughs> so, uh, that's like not even excellent English sex Excellent grammar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have no idea what that means at all. Didn't clear up a thing. Um, the leading theory as to what's going on was all uh, this was all an operation to try to sell a, uh, a plane to an Iranian airline. Due to sanctions against Iran, Iranian airlines cannot purchase any planes with U.S. manufactured parts. And this is one of the reasons that Iranian airlines fly such ancient planes, which they largely purchase on the secondhand market through questionable means. That's also why it seems likely that that's what's going on here. So, pretty interesting little uh, yeah, I, set of circumstances. I, I, I suspect a bit of skullduggery. Mm, nothing to um, see here. Nothing to see. Yeah, we don't know what exactly you're right. missing plane. And, we don't uh, know what you're talking perhaps, about. Press conference? Nah. Yeah. Perhaps our man in Iran, uh, the fine Mohammed, could uh, put his ear Isn't to the ground and see if he knows well, anything Iraq. about He's it. in Iraq. <laughs> oh, I'm bit, down. Sorry. A little bit different. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. a little yeah. different oh, no, don't do that then, Mohammed. <laughs> oh, sorry. Anyway, stay away from it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah. We don't really know what to say about this, except that it's probably a little shady. So I think it's already in bits. Yeah. I reckon most of it's flying in other airframes now. (laughs) Probably so. (laughs) That have been sitting on the ground, AOG. Got a, suddenly got a new registration and, uh. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) Replacing one of those other older aircraft. Liz says it's probably part of a new air, uh, show now called Airline Choppers. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. All right. Did I get that right, Liz? Okay, great. I didn't want to misquote you. All right. Um, oh, no. We're going green. We're going green. We're going green. Um, Greenpeace, in this case. Environmental activists from Greenpeace have protested at Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport by painting an Air France plane. Guess what? Green. Green. Yes. Green. Members of the organization demonstrated on, on the tarmac to denounce the government's greenwashing on air transport. Never heard of the term greenwashing, but okay. Nine activists dressed in yellow and white climbed the outer fence of the airport on Friday morning and applied green paint to a Boeing 777 Air France aircraft parked on the tarmac. 
There were no passengers on board at the time. Videos on social media showed Greenpeace using spray paint and a long roller to color the plane's left side green. And several of the protesters stood on the plane's wings carrying banners reading, Is there a pilot to save the climate? Is there? <laughs> mm. I don't know. None that I know of. Not sure exactly what like that question means. But <laughs> burning. Yeah. Well, uh, I Max might know a few Jeff pilots that fly electric airplanes. I don't know. Uh, not very many yet. But I was just thinking maybe maybe that the translation from French to English is where we lost the meaning of what that was. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. Yes. I certainly think greenwashing is a reference to whitewashing. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, mm-hmm. That makes sense. But uh, I, I just worry that this lot, it, this is not something that you can do in five minutes. Um, paint, you know, about a 20 foot wide swathe of green all over a 777 with all that gear that they needed to do that. So I'm just wondering what the hell security were doing. <laughs> you think Charles Yeah. It was lunchtime yeah. in France. At this huge international <laughs> airport. Liz and says it, looks it was like <laughs> probably. <laughs> Sorry. It Is was lunchtime. Terrible. If you're French and offended, you can send that straight to me. That's they were fine. busy eating lunch, Liz said. <laughs> it looks like about 10 people involved and at least two extension ladders. You've got a couple uh, people holding each extension ladder. You've got people all the way up on top of the airplane. I mean, this was not a uh, you know small operation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mm. How do you get through. 10 people across the fence in broad daylight to do something like this? Mm. Very good question. Very good question. Do not know. I guess I should probably have shared the screen so people could see this pretty uh, new um, livery for Air France, right? Uh, let's see here. Um, we should run a poll. Is it an improvement or yay or nay? I do like green. I do. I mean, I have to say, I like that color. Doesn't really go with like the colors of the French flag or anything. Liz is suggesting that they found the runway at the three ladders at the threshold of the runway and use those. (laughs) That's how they found the ladders. Oh, okay. (laughs) Makes sense. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to drive across the runway and that ladder is just going to fall out there and you can go (laughs) retrieve it and then paint the aircraft. Now, is it just me? I'm looking at this photo and uh, it looks like that, that second, that two left door looks like it has like blue paint tape around the edges of it. Well, it must have been. I was looking at it and thinking, Mm. what's that blue around the door? But I don't know. It just looks odd to me. Well, we didn't want to paint the door, so just put some tape around it. They were considerate of the seals, I guess, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, maybe it was one by the maintenance hangar that was being worked on. That would probably be easier to access than one at the terminal. Could be. Maybe they had just had some extra green paint lying around and it made it easier for them. I don't know. Yeah, they've also masked off two little squares in front of the leading edge of the wing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it does look like it was maybe curious being prepped thing. for paint. So, hmm. either that or it had been just put to one side uh, and sealed up a bit just to stop mm-hmm. rain getting in. That's possible. Perhaps they were parked it during the current pandemic and weren't using it. Or maybe they were about to do the weather. Doesn't that look like the perfect green screen color? I can just, we've got a front moving in from the east and it increasing is. rain. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, if they painted the whole thing green and green screen it, then you could fly around and be invisible, couldn't you? <laughs> okay. That means to me, it's time to move on to the next item. <laughs> and uh, that would be, oh, I got to play this. Let's see. Yes. 
the vacuum cleaners. <laughs> yes, it's a story about drones, but hey, don't you worry. It's not a negative story. It's a positive one. And uh, this is from... Oh, uh, shoot. Looks like... Not sure who this is from. Liz, can you help me? Okay. Um, note info. Huh. I don't see the... Uh, Oh, the vaccinealliance.org. Okay. Gavi. Okay, right there. Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Um, the first deliveries up to of up to two and a half million doses of COVAX vaccines by autonomous drone began this week in Ghana. And then maybe somebody can uh, start reading this while I put up a video in the background, some B-roll. Okay, Steph, go ahead. Do that, somebody? Nope, no, she can. Okay, Sorry, I was on the wrong screen and I couldn't get to <laughs> A rural spot in enough. Ghana's south-central Ashanti region. Uh, a launcher zinged as it whipped a drain, carrying a small consignment of vaccines into the sky. The sound, that metallic whoosh, unlike the sound that Jeff has, uh, has become a familiar, as familiar as a clockwork chime in uh, Mapanya the site of one of medical delivery drone service zip lines for Guiana nests, and from which as many as 500 flights of the fully autonomous aircraft can take off in a single day. But this particular drone carried a landmark payload, 250 doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine. Uh, the maiden flight of the world's first partially drone-borne COVID-19 immunisation campaign. You can't say that after a few beers. Um, <laughs> So across the country, Zipline is a mission-critical, reliable, and resilient part of Ghana's medical supply. We, we've actually talked about this before. I do remember this. Um, and they, they often use it for you know, urgent cases where medicine is needed in the outlying area because it's just so hard getting through the, um, the roads, in particular in times of the year when they're almost impassable. So um, in 34 minutes, the little red wing zip appeared in the sky above, above uh, Azufa Health Center, more than 70 kilometers away. That's quite good range. I was going to say, it has a really good range. Yeah, I, I guess because it's fixed wing rather than mm -hmm. propellers, it's a lot more efficient on power. Uh, government officials and healthcare and frontline workers who had assembled at the drop site to be vaccinated squinted upwards. The drone slowed, briefly dipped altitude, and disgorged its consignment. Whoever wrote this got a fine grasp. They had their thesaurus in front of them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> fine grasp of the English language. Um, packaged safely in a red insulated box, 25 glass vials twirled neatly to the earth under a paper parachute. Uh, within five hours, the 250 doses would find their mark in 250 arms. And one bottom. Uh, the first of uh, 4,500 doses to be delivered this way on the first day. That's very impressive. There's plenty more, but I think we've got the gist of yeah, that, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for reading that, sir. And we got a chance to look at a little video. It will be in the show notes for people that uh, aren't watching the video. Um, and uh, you can see the uh, zip line in operation. And uh, I love the way they recapture the thing, too. It kind of flies into kind of a something that snags the tail and you know 
successfully like a big rubber band recovers it. Yeah, big giant rubber yeah, band. Yeah, and I just realized as we talked about the story, I saw this thing in the early phases of development. I looked it up. Zipline is indeed based here in South San Francisco. Oh. And I remember one Saturday when a couple of other folks came out, this must have been easily five years ago, to a local uh, RC uh, you know, radio-controlled uh, field where my wife and I you know, fly RC planes on weekends. And they had this great big long launch thing. And they talked about, yeah, we're going to be using it in Africa. So I actually have wow. seen this back in the very early days. I mean, that's kind of part of the fun thing of being yeah. in Silicon Valley is yeah. often you uh, you know, see a lot of these uh, things early on. You see all the beta production. Oh, yeah, isn't like, it brilliant that it's actually doing a job of work now? Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. It, it is phenomenal. Yeah, these days you drive around here and you can you can almost hit a, a self driving car everywhere you look because there's so many cars, <laughs> so many companies testing them. I bet. I bet you can tell us some stories, Max. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I, I'm Maybe just not. a bit worried they had all these uh, um, health people at the delivery place, uh, and despite its paper parachute, they seem to have missed everybody, which was very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. And finally, uh, just quickly in the in the news, the most important one in our news notebook uh, was this story. Um, Atarco Airlines Boeing 737 was forced to return to Khartoum Airport after an angry cat attacked the pilots. Oh, is this Iva's cat again? It might be. Mm. I don't know oh, if it's Maggie right. or not. Um, is this the, the one that, that wrote to us? Yeah, it might week? be. <laughs> oh, the aircraft was operating a passenger flight from Khartoum International Airport, Sudan, to Doha Hamad International Airport, Qatar. or Qatar. However, after around 30 minutes off, uh, after the takeoff, the angry cat got into the cockpit and started attacking the pilots. The crew members tried to control the ferocious cat, <laughs> But failed to do so, and the pilots decided to return for an emergency landing. Is the cat like <laughs> pawing at the door, like little meow? They're like, mm, see what the cat wants. Let it in. The aircraft was parked at a hangar uh, at the Khartoum airport the night before the flight, and it is being assumed that the cat sneaked into the aircraft uh, in that oh, hangar. It must have been a cat burglar. Ah, but you bad. Very good. Very good. All right. Finally, it's time for us to oh, move. But one yes. quick question on that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Nick, what's the uh, IKO code for Khartoum, Nick? You probably have this off the top of your head. <laughs> or letter identifier. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it, it's H-S-S-S, hiss. Seriously, that's the identifier for Khartoum. That's great. This is the kind of stuff you can't make up. That's perfect. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. All right. Well, it is now time for that part of the show where we get to talk with each other and find out what everybody has been up to since the last time we recorded an APG. And it's been a while, and that is mainly because, as everybody knows, I have been feeling a bit under the weather. I'll go ahead and just um, continue with uh, what's been happening with me. Um, I... Kind of started feeling, uh, I went out on a trip on a um, Thursday, Friday, about almost two weeks ago now, and um, and I had a, a, a bad headache. Uh, I don't normally get headaches, and um, I'm thinking, well, I'm just dehydrated, and I was like, and I normally don't drink as a lot of water, but I was like, every time I saw a water bottle, I was like, I gotta, I gotta have some water, so my body was telling me that it was dehydrated, and then I needed more water, and then... The next day, kind of 
not feeling great, uh, ended the trip and, um, came home and thought, you know, a lot of the symptoms that I have are very, very eerily similar to the symptoms that I had when I had COVID back in, uh, January, uh, beginning of January. And so I'm thinking, um, maybe, um, is it possible? I started doing some research to see if it's possible for you to get COVID more than one time. And it's a, I guess it's possible, but it's very, very rare. So I, um, kind of just suffered through the symptoms and I had a, the thing that was particularly irritating for me and debilitating actually was, uh, this fever, uh, at times kind of high, but most of the time was just what, what, what we call a, a low grade fever, but it was just yeah. making me feel tired and, you know, fatigued and, um, in a general malaise. And, uh, so I, uh, went ahead and, uh, went to a local urgent care center and, uh, talked to, uh, the folks there and they did a test on, uh, influenza A and B and, uh, that was negative. And, but the doctor seemed to think that I was still suffering something viral. Um, I also at the same time, um, ordered an in-home testing kit from, um, my company and, uh, had that, I swabbed myself and sent that thing off thinking, okay, well, at least I can rule that out. And by the way, that did come back negative. So I don't have COVID again. Uh, which is not a not unusual. I mean, it would be unusual if I did. And um, so uh, the doctor kind of prescribed, um, not kind of, he did prescribe Tamiflu, which is a, a kind of a type of medication that you would treat uh, a viral infection, right, Steph? I think. Anyway. Specifically influenza, but yes. Okay. In most cases. And um, didn't really seem to do anything at all honestly. But, uh, anyway, I'm feeling a lot better now. My temperature is back, uh, to the normal range and I'm feeling, uh, I have a lot more energy today. And so all day today, uh, my temperature has stayed low and, and, uh, so I think I'm on the upswing and I'm getting better and, um, hopefully I'll be in good shape to, uh, fly my trip next week. But, uh, because of the way I was feeling last week, I called in sick for my trip, uh, it was a four day trip. And also the trip that I was supposed to fly Tuesday through Friday this week. Um, I also called in sick for, because again, I was in no shape to be in command of an airplane and responsible for passengers and crew and all that. Um, but, um, next week I'm scheduled to fly another Tuesday through Friday trip. And if I, feel the way that I do now, I'll be good to go. So, um, that, uh, is what has been happening with me, um, since we last recorded. And, uh, I did also mention on the last show that, um, a gentleman from icon, uh, aircraft had, uh, shown an interest to interview me for their podcast called adventure flying. And I had to, unfortunately, kind of postpone that as well. But I did hear back from him today, and we're going to go ahead and try to reschedule um, something for the future. So, um, yeah, that is not a lot happening with me. Just been, you know, getting a lot of sleep and not leaving the house and doing very much. But I guess that's kind of pretty much normal for everyone in these COVID times, right? But uh, 
except for people like stuff. Yeah, it is, but I'm so glad you're feeling a bit better because, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. quite honestly, it had gone on an awful long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it seemed like it was rather protracted. Yeah. Especially that fever. So I'm glad to hear that's been better today. Yeah, me too. And fingers crossed it'll stay that way because that's what all medicine is. It's just luck. Just kidding. Yeah, but, but thanks. <laughs> uh, despite your illness, thanks for <laughs> getting the last Definitely show Definitely no out. science behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took me a lot longer to do the editing and publishing of the last show than normal because – Believe it or not, it takes a lot of effort and concentration to do all the things that we do behind the scenes. I think uh, Max uh, would agree with me on that. And uh, I just, I was just sitting here going like, I just don't feel like doing it. I'm just, <laughs> I'd rather watch a YouTube video on something else. And uh, so that's, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Liz, for showing the uh, squirrel. I was easily distracted, even more easily than I normally am. And uh, so it took me a while to get that thing out, but I finally got it out uh, before um, last weekend. I think it was on Friday or Saturday of last weekend. So, um, and I'll do much better, I promise, um, this time around. So, anyway, enough about me. I'm feeling better, and I uh, hope to be out there aviating, and um, you know, doing all the normal stuff again soon. So, let me see who wants to go next why don't i'd like to say max for last because i i want to hear all about um his launch of um his new book so uh steph why don't you tell us what you've been up to sure be happy to um interesting weekend this past weekend um no flying as of yet although there could have been except i had alternate plans already for last weekend um i was supposed to be running the myrtle beach marathon this past saturday but because covid um they were very convinced that they were going to be able to to run it going to be able to run it and then about a month ago they said "Mm, you know what let's push it till may and everyone went may on the coast in south carolina that's gonna be hot and gross and well so i had already booked a and it would have been perfect condition gross gross yeah it's a good good term gross yeah yeah it's gonna be hot and humid probably and not fun marathon conditions. Um, this past Saturday would have been perfect. It was high of like 52 overcast, a little on the breezy side, nice running conditions. Um, but we didn't run a marathon. Uh, I was supposed to be doing it with my younger brother, Mikey. And um, I had uh, gotten this Airbnb that um, it did not get any, it, it was a non-refundable type of situation. So I, that's how I tend to make travel plans because most of the time they work out and uh, whatever. Um, so I said, you know what? Heck with it. Come down anyway. It's beginning of March. Might be nice weather. Might not be. We'll figure out something to do. Wasn't good beach weather, but um, he, uh, so he made plans to come out here and he was supposed to arrive on Thursday evening. Um, I was going to go to the airport. Oh, I was going to run, go to the airport, pick him up, come back, um, get, uh, get to work the next day, have an early day on Friday, and we'd drive down to Myrtle Beach. I get a call from him right about the time his flight is supposed to be departing, and he goes, so, um, this is my brother, I, I missed my flight. And I said, oh, were you like working, or was there some reason why you missed it? And he said, no, I just thought I was here in time, but I guess I wasn't. Uh, I was taking a cue from you, probably, (laughs) but only you can pull that off. (laughs) But my goal is always to be at the gate at the time boarding starts. Like, I really don't want to be there any later than that. 
Um, really? His strategy was a little a little <laughs> different. Well, as uh, okay, so what my boarding group is called. Okay. So, yeah. His strategy was a little different. Five minutes prior to departure should be plenty of time, right? Well, yeah, except that they can give your seat away to standbys at that point and leave early without you, which is what happened. <laughs> so <laughs> the airline was kind Uh-oh. enough to say, well, you can go standby on uh, this flight to Dallas and then wait there for like an hour and then fly to Charlotte. Um, so, you know, adds an extra like three hours worth of travel time and standby and you got to go to Dallas. So fun. Um so he's talking to me. And I said, well, what time does that flight to Dallas leave? And he goes, well, I don't know. I'm at the airport. What's what's the big deal? I'm like, you were at the airport and missed your flight anyway. <laughs> and he goes, oh, shoot, it's, it's boarding now. I was like, okay, well, you're going to hang up the phone. You're going to get on this plane. <laughs> Please make it here Love tonight. It. So we did finally get here around midnight on Thursday night. Um, so I said, you know what? That's fine. Sleep in. I got I got work to do. And then I actually had... Um, couple other things to do, which are going to tie into podcasting and aviation, which I will get back to. I'll circle back to that in a minute. I'll probably forget. Don't let me forget. We will um, Yeah. So we got home around, I don't know, four o'clock on, no, three o'clock, four o'clock Friday afternoon. It's like a three and a half hour drive from my place down to Myrtle Beach. So we got everything packed up, jumped in the car, drove all the way down to Myrtle Beach. Um, really didn't stop. We we went through a cookout drive through um, on the way, got some burgers and shakes and corn dog and you know the good healthy healthy food and <laughs> south carolina i don't know it's, it's really For good south carolina way, if you've never good. been to if you've never been to cookout you should, i'm gonna plug cookout they're very good, good. Yeah. Uh, so we arrived in myrtle beach i don't know um hmm. not quite 10 o'clock i'd say well no it was a little thank you probably not quite 10 o'clock and my bags were in the back seat. And I grabbed my my bags, and Mikey had put his bags all the way in the back, or so he thought. He got back there and he goes, "Hey, where'd you put my bag?" And I said, "Me? Why would I put your bag in the car?" Oh no, <laughs> no bag. <laughs> uh-uh. Yep, no bag. So now he's missed his flight. Doesn't have any of his clothes for the weekend. Not because the airline lost it. He just <laughs> neglected to actually put the. He, he brought it out to the garage and left it in the garage. Um, I, now to be fair, I told him, I said, I'm going to move the, pull the car forward a little bit because it's got a, a gate that opens out. And I was a little far towards the back of the garage. I said, I'll give you a little bit more room. I'll do that. I did that. Went back inside, took care of some things. He was in the car when I came back out. I didn't even bother to look over there. Um, so that's how we ended up in Myrtle Beach, um, without any of Mikey's clothes. Or Don't you sometimes or... wish you were an only child? <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> No, love my love my siblings very much. Uh, so we went, well, all right, well, you know, it's Myrtle Beach, it's Beach Town. We definitely just passed one of the, you know, the kind of ubiquitous sell all the beach things shops. I was like, you probably want a swimsuit. They looked open still. Let's run over there before they close. So she was like closing in five minutes. We ran in. I was like, here you go. Half off swimsuits or whatever, because it's not beach season. <laughs> that could be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which half is off. <laughs> I was like, you know, it is not very warm, so maybe you want a sweatshirt because he's wearing like a cut off or a short sleeve t-shirt. So I'd probably grab a sweatshirt. So he did that and I was like, you know what? You also left my my cooler full of drinks in the garage. So oh, there's a Walmart down the street. Let's go see if we can find some provisions and some toiletries and all that. So you know, a few uh like twenty-five minutes later, back at the the condo, drinks in hand, hot tub, 
turned out okay. All's well. Uh, all is well. We actually did not spend much time in Myrtle Beach itself because it really wasn't a good beach weekend and there's not a lot to do if it's not beach season in Myrtle Beach. So we drove down the coast to Charleston and spent the day there and uh, actually had a really nice time on, on Saturday. Just good food, oysters and whatnot, and did some historical walking tours and uh, Mikey had never been there before. So that was that was nice. Here's a good place for golfing, though, this time of year, right? Myrtle Beach? Probably. Yeah, I think so. I'm not. Uh, who is Myrtle? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I actually had that that same question, Nick. I meant to look it up. Why is it Myrtle Beach? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'll have to figure, find that out. Perhaps there was a turtle called Myrtle. Myrtle the turtle. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, to circle back to what I was going to talk about, the reason I was a little later getting home on Friday afternoon than I had planned, um, I was I went over to Armando's house, you know, one of the co-hosts of the Plain Talking UK, and... Um, had a kind of a technical meeting um, with Armando, his wife Megan, and um, their producer John and Matt, who does a lot of their um, in-studio work, because this upcoming Friday, so two days from today, um, we are doing a Women in Aviation special. So yeah. we're going to have four, we're, we're taking over, we're kicking the guys out. we got four awesome co-hosts, um, uh, Armando's wife Megan. Uh, we'll be in the studio together, um, helping each other out. We'll have um, Jody Ruger, who's an aerobatic pilot up in Canada, and Ariel Tweedo, who some people might know from that Flying Wild Alaska series on Discovery Channel um, a couple years back. And we've got a whole bunch of um, media that's been sent in from various uh, women in different aviation-related fields, pilots, and and all across the board and really interesting, compelling stories. So please tune in and watch that or um, give it a listen on the the podcast if you can't tune in in live. So that'll be this Friday. We're going to record it live at um, so that'll be 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Um, British. Uh, was that standard time? Right? Is that what it's called there, Nick? I don't know. UK time. It's called uh, Universal uh, uh, UTC. Time so, Coordinate yeah, or right. Greenwich Mean Time. It's, it's, yeah, for another it's actually two coordinated weeks. universal time, but it's for another two weeks. When do you guys change your? When do you guys change your class? Yeah, that's the fridge for the. <laughs> yeah, that's their silly idea. So yeah, this is like two days from now, right? Yes, two days awesome. from now. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's. Good. That. I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be brilliant. I'm, yeah, I think it's. I'm sure, it's you'll have gonna, fun. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a blast. Um, just just chatting about various things Cocked, and, and like I said, really. Uh, you know, I probably not. I think they run up. Oh. Maybe we'll see. They run up. If the other, if the other hosts have have arrived with cocktails, I will be prepared in case. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to make sure it goes goes nice and smoothly for them. So we'll. we'll yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you should drink at least four or that. five IPAs and read something technically oriented. Very technical. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That Are always, boys allowed in the chat room? In the chat room, yes. Okay. Yes. All right. That's good. Yeah. I should be there. No, no. We'd, <laughs> we'd love for you all to be there. Awesome. Well, we'll be there to support you for sure. Excellent. All right. That's uh, that's exciting. Um, yeah. Anything else, uh, Steph? I mean, like, what could... What else could I, there yeah. be? Other other than I feel like I, if my head weren't attached right now, I would have left it somewhere this week, mm, past week yeah. and a half, because I've been that busy running around doing all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, it's it's a wonder that I wasn't the one that left my suitcase behind, because that's about how clear-headed I feel sometimes. Yeah. Well, it'll all be behind you before too long. Yes. 
Indeed. Uh, Sir Nick, how is everything? Oh, he just happened to disappear <laughs> as soon as I said, <laughs> Sir Nick. Obviously, he does not want to talk about himself. He's very modest. So he took himself out of the stream completely. I mean, I don't see anything. I think he probably just clicked the window closed and that just completely dumped everything. Oh, well. Uh, so Max, now it's your opportunity to, first of all, I mean, if people have never heard of aviation news talk, uh, podcast, I mean, wherever they've been, you know, living under a rock or something. Um, and of course the airplane geeks, the longest running and the most professional and the best, uh, aviation podcast in the world. Uh, you've been a co-host, uh, for them for what did you say six years already now yeah six and a half coming up on seven years this summer wow. so more than half of the shows uh, run which is funny because uh yeah they still treat me like the new kid which is fine <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. still treat nick like the new kid too it's yeah yeah the new kid that doesn't know how to close a window <laughs> or does know how to close a window. <laughs> i yeah uh, i've got one of those apple mice uh-huh. Uh, I sideswiped it by accident. Oh, no. we <laughs> which is not too bad because I was I was all prepared here to talk about Nick and give an update on what he's been doing for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's let's continue with Max and his uh, new book. You're going to tell us a little bit about that. I'll hold this up while I. Um, oh, you know what? I must. I think that's picking up some of the green screen, isn't it? Oh yeah, because that's green lettering. <laughs> Are we able to look through the book and see you? Yeah, well, almost. You put your head behind the the book, Jeff, and we'll see if we can see your. There's something. No, uh, not quite. Uh, well, no, it's, it doesn't work that way. It's, just, it, it's only going to show the background, regardless of whether oh, my yeah. head's there or not. But uh, that is the definite <laughs> the the font color. Max Trescott's is definitely the color of my background. So. Um, it matches. Okay. Well, I tried to coordinate everything here today. I've got your mustache. I've got <laughs> yeah, your colors on the book. I do appreciate that. So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So, um, my first book was gosh, back in 2006, the G 1000 class cockpit handbook, which is now in its fifth edition. And that's probably what most people uh, know for me, uh, know me for, uh, then I put out another book, on uh, GPS and WAS, uh, an instrument flying. And then this one has been a heck of a lot of fun. I've got uh, my type rating in the, uh, Cirrus vision jet mm, roughly three years ago. And it's kind of interesting when I first started learning the G1, G3000 that's in that airplane, it took me a while to wrap my head around it. And part of it, you know, it felt kind of foreign, but then as I really got to, to, to know the system, well, I realized, wow, this thing is a substantial improvement over the G1000. It is so much easier to use when you, uh, you know, when you get used to it. Uh, and what's interesting is there is a, a common uh, software code base uh, between the G3000 and the G5000, which is used in the, what the, uh, I guess they're part 25 jets. I can't remember. It's the larger, the larger jets. Uh, but the common code base is with the uh, GTN 650 and 750, which are the smaller navigators that replace the, you know, the, the, the old 430 that everybody knows. And so they use a lot of the same icons and those icons lead to many of the same functions. And so, you know, I, I just, I am really amazed that Garmin uh, put so much time and effort into the development of the user interface that it's just so much easier to use. And I, I thought the G1000 was outstanding, but here you, you realize, okay, touchscreen works great. We don't need to worry about turning cursor on, cursor off, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people and then touch when I started, the screen anyway and, like, fingerprints all over the screen. 
Well, and here's the the nice reason uh, that this works better in the G3000 than the, the 650 and 750. In the G3000, you have separate displays that you don't touch, and then you've got smaller touchscreen controllers that you do touch. And mm-hmm. most of the pretty pictures that you're looking at are on the big displays, and there are no fingerprints you know, on those. So you're right. That's an improvement over nice. the 650 where you're touching the maps and they get all you know, gummy and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Steph, you missed uh, earlier. Um, I came up with my uh, future plane tales and I gave each of uh, the APG crew members a, uh, a kind of future plane that I could see you flying in. And I said, as the runner, you're probably looking at kind of lean, efficient machine. And that would be the, the Cirrus vision jet. Uh, so, yeah, the most I've done so far is to sit in one and, and, and actually I'm trying to think that just with the G3000, those touchscreens are, they're down kind of on the console away from, yeah, I'm trying to remember. They are. But yeah, yep. it's been a couple of years, but, um, yeah, it's such a cool machine that was really, yeah, what nice. did you, what did you like about it? What impressed you about the airplane? So at the time I was actually flying, um, fairly regularly SR22, um, but just the kind of the commonality there. I mean, obviously very different aircraft, but you step into it and you go, oh, it's obviously Cirrus. So if you know Cirrus, you kind of know how they've laid everything out and you can see how they would make that transition relatively easy for you to achieve. Um, kind of like how if you know Garmin, if you know other Garmin products, once you go, oh, okay, it's like this one and I've used this before, you can transition there even if there's a learning curve of sorts. Yes, it's um, I, I, when I, some of the things that just just blow me away about the aircraft are, for example, if I try to climb into the front seat of most small jets or turboprops, you know, it's 45 seconds to kind of, you know, squeeze my body pretzeled into the seat, you know, with the, the vision jet, boom, it's about as easy as jumping into the chair that I'm sitting here in, in my office, you know, it's two seconds to get in and out. Uh, and then you've got this massive view out the front window. Uh, and then the G3000 really eliminates the need for many of the switches. You know, look at most jets and you know, I think they're designed with the engineering mentality, which is, oh, there's a spare space that we haven't covered with something. Let's put a switch, you know, up there. And so the entire cockpit is hundreds of switches. You know, they took the opposite design approach, which was a switch in order to exist has to justify its existence. And most of the switches are accessible through the, uh, the touch screens and so you've got a very clean interior which is nice so it kind of looks like a luxury car as you climb into the front as opposed to a classic jet max you don't understand uh all the switches and everything i mean that's what turned the chicks on right there (laughs) i thought those were job security (laughs) that's part of it too (laughs) (laughs) it hasn't gone the whole airbus uh route max it doesn't have just the two switches take (laughs) off and land well it's close it does have the side stick you know which is off to the side there so yeah it's definitely the ga version of of an airbus Mm. So, which, which really opens everything up, right? There's just nothing between you and, and the front panel at all. Uh, so, yeah, you have yet really... to actually put like a tray table there, though, so you can eat your lunch or something <laughs> while you're in a cruise. Not as serious. Well, and, you know, I think most of the legs are so short. You know, it's you know, roughly a 1,200 uh, you know, nautical mile plane. Most of the legs that I've flown in it are probably two and a half, three hours. So, you know, it's, you, you don't really Oh, I really could definitely to... have lunch. You could cram a couple meals in. Fine. Oh, yeah. Lunch, lunch and probably dinner <laughs> well 
Except for me, the electrical engineering background, I'm having too much fun playing with everything and <laughs> pushing all the buttons and all that kind of stuff. But I got intrigued by uh, by doing this because I discovered that there are just so many different airplanes that have the G3000 and the uh, the G5000 uh, in it. So f- probably the most bizarre is the uh, you know the F5s from uh, from Tac Air. Yeah, and it's a it's a modular system. Uh, and so if you look at the vision jet, they've got two displays, three touchscreen controllers. If you look at most of the turboprops in uh, business jets, it's the opposite. They've got three displays and two G3000, you know, touch controllers, but then you get to the, uh, the F5 and they've got just a single display. And I believe it's two touchscreen controllers, you know, beneath it. So all these airplanes have different uh, combinations of, you know, modules that uh, Garmin has, you know, put together for them, and yet they all have a common user interface. So you can literally jump between 23 different airplanes and you already know pretty much how to operate them. Well, I'm impressed that the equipment has the capability of coping with a high-performance aircraft like the uh, F-5. Um, so that, you know, really is tantamount, uh, you know, a great uh, example of how well it's been constructed, yeah. Well, I think most Cirrus VisionJet owners think that their plane does Mach 1.5 as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't do anything close not, to not that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, about 310 uh, knots when you're uh, in the G2 version up at cruise. But, you know, it's still a substantial increase over the old SR-22. Oh, sure. And I think yeah. mo- most of these airplanes are people who've stepped up from the 22 and want to fly a jet. and you know, it's the the goal is not to get there as fast as possible. It's really to get there as comfortable, comfortable as possible. In style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Oh, yeah. Do you get a so, chance to fly the? You haven't flown in my jets then. Okay. <laughs> fly the what? You haven't flown in my aircraft then. Oh. oh. Okay. <laughs> yep. Do you what get a chance often, Max, to uh, to fly the Sirius jet? I do. Yeah, I I probably uh, average 150 hours a year in them. I would guess yep. so. Yeah, working. Yeah. But we've got uh, increasingly more and people, more and more people here on the West Coast uh, with them, and occasionally uh, do some other work with uh, other folks. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 just so much fun. I love it. So the the big difference this year has been, uh, you know, usually I'm out there flying five six days a week. Uh, this year I'm coming up on n- tomorrow the one year anniversary of you know putting on the COVID brakes and going. Oops, let's time to time to go hibernate for a while. Mm-hmm. So I I did come out of hibernation for eleven weeks back in uh, September October November, but then everything just kind of went through the roof again and mm-hmm. decided that uh, you know it just made more sense to to stay home, but happy to see that, uh, just yesterday, I guess the, the number of cases in my County for the first time in probably five months is below a hundred new cases a day. Whereas we had seen as many as uh, about 2,300 a day just in the wow. County. So wow. it's been, uh, wow. been pretty crazy. So yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, you know, getting vaccinated at some point and getting back out there, uh, you know, to fly relatively uh, soon. And Lane is I asking, go ahead. Does Max instruct would, in the Cirrus jet? I'm, I'm sure he does. When, when Cirrus asks me to do it, I do it. Yeah. Uh, so I always coordinate everything uh, through them. So yes, I, uh, they, they basically, you know, when they, they look for some help, they'll, they'll let me know. Very nice. But, but you're also asking Jeff about book tour. This mm-hmm. is the, the virtual book tour. So during the news, I've had a line of people outside here and I've just been, you know, signing books here one after another as they <laughs> you know, kind of step through the door here. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I'm curious, Max, uh, because uh, this is presumably a fairly uh, new piece of kit. Um, it is. 
how uh, did you manage to get all the technical and the sort of uh, your personal knowledge of how this worked um, when it's, you know, perhaps not easy to get? Did they send you a mock-up or have you got a computer simulation, simulation or are you just working from the, uh, Cirrus's manual, sorry, from Garmin's manual? Boy, it's almost all of the above. Uh, I started with, uh, you know, my knowledge of the G3000 based on getting type rated in the, in the Cirrus Vision Jet. Uh, but then I worked with Garmin and got uh, manuals for many uh, of the other uh, aircraft that, uh, you know, have the G3000 in it. I did have one piece of uh, simulation software uh, for uh, one, of the, one of the jets. And so, um, and, and then just took literally hundreds of photos uh, you know, when I'm in the aircraft and also screenshots off of the software simulator. So I've got 400, uh, you know, full color photos in there. And that's probably the, the biggest thing is just kind of, well, uh, the biggest thing is sorting out the differences. And even though I said the user interface is the same, there are differences in software versions. So for example, if you hop into a Honda jet, the latest version there may include features that haven't yet rolled out in a TBM, you know, for example. Uh, so it's a little bit of, um, kind of, you know, menu uh, of uh, that, that that rolls out at different rates in different you know aircraft. So some manufacturers choose not to implement all of the G three thousand features that Garmin makes available, and when they do implement them, they may be a year behind some other you know, aircraft manufacturer that has implemented them. And so that was kind of the biggest trick was to kind of track the differences between them and then set the book up with, you know, lots of little uh, you know, graphical icons so people could, you know, look here if you're a vision jet or look here if you're a TB, <laughs> things like that. So it was about a two-year project to figure out how do you organize this massive amount of information. Mm hmm well, yeah, but I, I, I'm sure that the people who buy the book will love it because if it's anything like, well, I've got a new camera and uh, I've, I've read the Canon manual, but it really doesn't uh, doesn't have photographer speak. It's it's very technical, and I've no doubt that the readers, because you probably write in a pilot speak way uh, and and explain things as a pilot might want to do it, uh, it'll probably be much easier to understand. Indeed. And right now I'm staring at my camera as well. And I agree, you know, the manual to me is Greek. And so it's just awful, yeah. awful, yeah. awful tough to understand that. So yeah, that's, that's what I try and do with my book. So anyway, Excellent. it's a lot of fun. It's a work of love. So how uh, would the listeners gain access by purchase your Oh, book. sure. So the easy thing to do is they can either go out to my maxtrescott.com website. Uh, in the next couple of days, I'll have the g3000book.net website fully up and running. There's also an 800 number, 800-247-6553. So those are all different ways that you can uh, find the book. Is it on Kindle? Not yet. Oh, are you thinking of doing that? I'm Definitely. Sure. Is that a okay. little trickier just with um, illustrations and whatnot, getting that into digital? I guess maybe not since it's printed, but. I don't know. I'm scared to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Are you volunteering stuff to do that for him? No. Okay. I don't know how to do that. That's great. <laughs> great. Great announcement. I need more projects. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just right, more things to do. right now. More work. <laughs> Wait, did, did I hear Liz saying that she'll uh, help me out? Let's here? See. Yes. Liz? <laughs> yeah. She said, I don't have anything else to do. I'd love to. No, she, not, she did not say that. Excellent. Oh, my goodness. No yes. problem. Good, good thing they can't hear what you're saying now. Wow. <laughs> Take my headphones off. <laughs> Just kidding. She's not saying anything unpleasant at all. She's not saying anything at all, actually. Are you okay? 
Okay. She's still here. Okay, good. All right. Um, excellent. Thank you so much for, again, honoring APG to announce your, your new book. And uh, we really wish you great success with it. I'm sure it'll be brilliant. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, Nick, um, before you threw yourself out of the uh, stream yard, um, <laughs> I think you were Harry about Curry. to say something. <laughs> I don't know. Were you? Uh, I was going to say just a little bit um, in that uh, not much has happened. You know what it's like. Uh, I've been, tink, you know, um, picking my nose and, you know, cleaning my fingernails, waiting for you to get fit enough to have ah. another show. In the meantime, um, you know, the lady wife has had her birthday. So uh, uh, we've now torn down and put up a new rose arch in the garden. That was fun. Uh, the roses I, have- I heard, heard you say. Yes, exactly. So Spent it looks fine. Tearing it down. That's great. <laughs> um, but uh, of course, that's it. That's just personal family stuff. Mm-hmm. We're still under lockdown here, although yeah. uh, uh, things are starting, just starting to ease. Um, the only uh, thing of our real interest is uh, our old young Marcus. Um, he, I have to thank him, of Marcus uh, of Omega Tau. Uh, you'll uh, all know Omega Tau, I hope, if you're uh, a keen aviation chap because he's had some brilliant aviation podcast episodes. Uh, Marcus has. Um, he features in today's plane tale with a couple of uh, German phrases. Thank you very much for that, Marcus. Uh, but more importantly, he's going to be doing uh, a um, podcast on the F-18 and he's got a proper F-18 pilot um, to talk to. Uh, but he did say he would be quite interested to chat to me and get some anecdotes. So hopefully You're not I'll a proper be... F-18 pilot? No, I'm not nearly as recent as, oh, okay. <laughs> as the fine chap he has, uh, he has got. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I've got some uh, F-18 stories I'll be chatting to him about uh, oh, really uh, cool. in the next, uh, I guess, few weeks. And we'll... We'll see when that comes out. But uh, that'll be fun to relive F-18 times because I haven't really thought about that for a very long time. Um, yeah. My F-18, by the way, I think is uh, either in Canada or it's with that um, cowboy bunch of aggressor pilots you have over there in the States, a bunch of civilians uh, who uh, work for the Air Force, who are contracted to fly aggressor um, flights against the uh, USAF. So I think they might have it, but no no one's willing to tell me. I did actually tweet uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force and ask them where my airplane was. Which no is, uh, they No, they didn't come mm. back to me. I'm huh. very disappointed. So if there's anyone there listening from the Royal Canadian Air Force PR department, could you uh, give someone a prod and see if you can find out where uh, the Australian airframe A21-4 uh, is now located? Did you guys get it or what? Usually the Canadians are so nice too, you know? Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> or at least they apologize. Well, they, that's the impression yeah. that they give you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been my life for the last week or so. Excellent. All right. Everybody uh, ready for me to talk a little bit about the coffee fund? Then we'll move on to the feedback. Yeah, I, I do need to go to the toilet, yes. Okay, well, good. Perfect <laughs> timing then. Thank you for sharing. Johnny, how much more coffee? So thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. 
coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup oh wasn't sure i'd be able to sing actually with my voice in the condition it's in anyway um coffee fun it's your way dear listener to support our show financially uh, only if you have the resources to do so of course and a couple different ways to do that. Uh, it's called the Coffee Fund. Uh, the Coffee Fund Classic is the first way you can do it. Um, a one-time or recurring donation is possible using our Classic um, Fund mechanism via PayPal. And since the last episode, Vigner, Jason, Alistair, Randy, Ryan, Mazutz, and George uh, used that uh, Classic method to support our show. So thank you very much, each and every one of you, for doing that. And the other way to support the show is to become a patron of it. Patron of the arts. Okay, I'm pushing it when I say arts. But uh, a patron of Airline Pilot Guy show. And uh, looks like we have a new patron, an executive producer patron, John Stewart. So thank you very much, John. If you're interested in becoming part of this great group of folks, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with uh, Daniel. (laughs) Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. I've been a silent listening member of the APG community for several years and first want to tell you how much I love the show. You provided what is he, a stalker? <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he likes me and us, and uh, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Uh, you provided lots of inspiration as I worked my way through getting my private pilot certification in 2018 in Sacramento, California. See, he's picked up. He didn't say his private pilot license. He said private pilot certification. Ding. Very good. Uh, Excellent. I always think of you and Dana when I see the Mad Dog firefighting tankers stationed at McClellan Airport, where my flying club is hosted. Wanted to send you the attached file. And then he gives us a link to um, the uh, URL. This occurred yesterday at a local airport, and I thought reading the first sentence compared to the second sentence was interesting. I don't want to assume the ignorance of the author. (laughs) Well, you probably should. Uh, and was wondering, is a gear up landing technically considered a hard landing? I suppose it could have been both. Uh, it may not be appropriate, but I laughed about it after thankfully hearing that everyone was okay, well, at least okay physically. Uh, thanks so much, Daniel. And uh, so he, as I mentioned, uh, sent this link and the, the headline is military training jet hard landing closes runway at Mather. A military jet had a hard landing. Thursday morning at Mather Airport, closing one of their runways, the T-38 Talon experienced a gear-up landing around 9 a.m. So, yeah, uh, technically, I think you would say that a hard landing and a gear-up landing are really two separate things, but you can't argue that if you do land gear-up, it's probably going to feel kind of hard compared to what you're normally used to. It works one way around, but not the other way, right? Like, a hard landing isn't always a gear-up landing, but a gear-up landing is probably going to feel like a bit of a hard landing maybe yeah well, technically maybe isn't it really considered a short field landing <laughs> yes, it's a, a short field landing, landing. <laughs> which i mean really really short ground roll yes you're right especially for a t-38 
Now, I was thinking back to the days when I flew the T-38, and uh, you know, I don't have any manuals or anything from back, uh, you know, it was before the turn of the century, um, back in the 80s when I flew the thing. But I don't recall any procedure for purposely landing a T-38 Talon jet trainer gear up. I'm pretty sure, again, I could be wrong about this. Maybe people in the live audience can correct me about this if you have any experience with the Talon. But I think that if you were in a situation where you had to land with some kind of a gear malfunction like gear up, they recommended that you just try to find a place somewhere out over the open waters or open, not not waters, that would be a bad thing, um, open countryside, unpopulated or non-populated as much as possible possible and then uh, it's a term that we used a lot which is kind of insensitive but uh, give it back to the taxpayers in other words eject and uh, and I'm, I'm not saying I ever use that term but I've heard other people use it <laughs> and uh, because I think that um, you know purposely landing a t38 Talon gear up um, is not necessarily the safest thing to do so I have a feeling, that this crew during their doing their training um just neglected to uh lower the landing gear failure yeah mm-hmm. i'm guessing again i don't know i don't know anybody that knows anything about this and you know i'm no, not even sure it's pure it's speculation pure speculation Honestly. pure speculation but um well it looks yeah. really flat on the runway. So I'm guessing it wasn't a hard landing because you might have seen one gear collapse. This this looks like it's just perfectly flat, all gear retracted. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right, Max. It probably was not a hard landing. It was probably, probably they're thinking, oh, why are we not? Oh, why are we? Oh, okay, now we're on the ground. <laughs> um, by that point, it's like too late to go around. Oh, shoot. Yeah. We're going to have some splaining to do. I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Uh, you might well be right, um, but uh, it, particularly if they advised ejection rather than attempting it, if it was a premeditated one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do remember a, an F4 uh, did this once, and um, he decided when he suddenly realized that he was sinking lower than he should do, he popped both reheats in and uh, tried to climb away but he hit the tanks onto the runway and tore the bottom of the tanks off um the two wing tanks which still have fuel in oh so as he got airborne all this fuel started leaking oh. out the reheat set light to the fuel oh. and he was like this I- this <laughs> it's Apollo rocket. <laughs> it was beautiful. It's like a fireworks display. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, climbing out. So, I mean, luckily the fuel emptied pretty quickly from the wing tank. So, uh, I think that the, that went out after a while. And he put oh, so the gear he, down. <laughs> was he able to recover the airplane? Yeah, I think oh, so. Wow. Yeah, as I recall. Wow. Yeah, I would they, not they have carried on landed. Uh, but uh, no, I, there's plenty of occasions. That's one of the reasons if you go to a UK military field, you'll be asked to check three greens uh, mm-hmm. because uh, there's a little bloke at the end of the runway in a red and white caravan uh, who sits there sipping tea on a, with a pair of binoculars. And all he does is check to see um, if you gear down and you'll have to make an extra transmission to confirm that. Funnily enough, the Aussies didn't do that, but they had something fitted to all of their aircraft so that when you had the gear down and you transmitted a call, it would add a little coded bleep onto the end of it so that when you made your finals call, 
uh, if you didn't have that little coded bleep to indicate to their traffickers that your gear was down, then, you know, you were told to go around. Interesting. Wow. Hmm. Very clever, though. Very Good, clever. Clever technology. I'm surprised it's not more in use, I guess, cost and, I don't you know, know, participation. Uh, yeah. I um, was thinking about what you just said, Nick. I do remember that when I was in the Air Force, um, when we were given landing clearance, we would always say, you know, we we would always say gear down, clear to land. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if we did that in the uh, C-141 Starlifter or not, but I do remember in Air Training Command we did. And um, I'm kind of surprised that they, or maybe they said it and it wasn't true, or maybe they don't have a, a runway supervisory unit. Um there uh, near the runway to kind of check for those things or, or not. I mean, it's a, it wasn't a, you know, a civilian base. It was, um, well, I don't know. Is Mather now? Mather used to be a strict military, but maybe it's joint use now. That's no, it's not. It's uh, it's, it's pure a strictly civilian field. Oh, so um, it's got one very long runway. So oh. I'm sure a lot of, you know, jets come in for training, but no, it's strictly GA now. Okay. So that's mm. why they didn't say Mather Air Force Base. They said Mather Airport. Yep. Okay, I see. A lot has happened since I was in the Air Force. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know exactly what happened in this case, but uh, interesting. Occasionally, um, when I was in the Air Force, we'd be asked by the controller, uh, the tower controller, to make a practice approach uh, without gear uh, to see if the caravan controller... (laughs) Just to test them? Hey, you have you have one job here, buddy. <laughs> one job. Busted. So yeah, it was so interesting. So as you came around the corner with no gear, you were expecting a red ferry to be fired because they had them sort of pre-mounted in the ceiling of this caravan. So he had to put his cup of tea down and then pull the trigger and fire a ferry at you, and then this goes right across in front of you. So get your attention. Go around. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I'd like that job. How does one apply for that job? Yeah, but oh, you, you wouldn't. The, uh, there was a lovely no? lady, corporal uh, air traffic controller, who uh, nearly got hit twice by crashing aircraft. Um, oh, so uh, okay. I think after the second time, she decided she wanted a new job. <laughs> <laughs> Can I do something else? <laughs> yes. Yeah. One was an F-111 and another was a Phantom. Oh, and both very nearly took her out. Hmm. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything she could have done about No, it. at that point, probably not much. Just. All right. Well, let's move on to two. Uh, Steve says, hi, APG crew. Just a quick feedback to share with the community, a YouTube channel that I stumbled across recently, which I think is great. It's called Flying with Big Urn. Uh, E-R-N, not U-R-N. Uh, he is a is Southwest. He, is he one of the Muppets? Um, I don't think so. No. The companion one is flying with Bert. Yeah. Yeah. Bert, no. exactly Bert, right. Nern. Mm-hmm. Um, Bert and Ernie. He's a Southwest First Officer, and his videos give great insights into daily life as an airline pilot. He also owns a Cirrus SR22, so he has made some interesting videos flying that around. Below is a link to one of his videos in case people are interested to look him up on YouTube. So this is a kind of a YouTube shout out from steve and i believe i ended up uh we'll just kind of play a little tiny bit of um earn and uh this is the one that i ended up downloading here so we'll play that Uh, again just a little teaser 
Hey everybody, welcome to today's vlog. We're back at the airport. It's time to do it again. We had a long week of vacation, which was super awesome. And now it's time to get back to work. Uh, we are gonna be just flying a turn today, hence the turn bag. Love the turn bag. So <laughs> The turn bag, of course, is That's a very, bold. it's a very small <laughs> bag, you know, that, uh, you just have your essentials, uh, maybe a, uh, a shaving and kit. just really hope that you don't get stuck. Yes. Yeah. That's at true. At your turn destination. Yeah. Exactly. I always opt for the full suitcase when I, uh, the full, the full roller bag when I go, even if I think I'm only going to fly to Myrtle beach and back or something, but cause I've learned my lesson. Oh Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you from firsthand experience, so you can buy all the necessities at the Walmart neighborhood market in Myrtle Beach. In Myrtle Beach. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Until quite late at night, about midnight or so. All right. Um, what do you think, Liz? Um, I know it's just a couple of minutes before we normally uh, do the plain tail, but I'm thinking, okay, go plain tail, she says. So without further ado, we're going to play this week's installment of the old pilot's plain tale and um i'm not even going to attempt to uh, tell you what the title is the old pilot will the old pilot's plain tales the hover cushion glide air vehicle thing the plural of hovercraft is hovercraft but not all hovercraft are called hovercraft, it being a name coined by Sir Christopher Sidney Cockrell and became the trademark of Saunders Row Corporation, the maker of the first practical commercial air cushion vehicle, or ACV. Claimants to the throne of being the first to develop a hovering craft are numerous, and most popped up soon after the Second World War, but in fact, the theory stretches back way before that. The notion of crafting a hovering vehicle goes at least as far back as 1714 when the eminent Swedish scientist Emanuel Swedenborg sketched the concept in a notebook and first used the term hovering. He termed it a machine to fly in the air and it resembled an oval dome-shaped frame braced with struts and covered with material. On the top there was a hole and a space for a man to sit. With his feet he would power paddles that drew air into the frame from above until it lifted into the air. However, he had many other interests, including anatomy and physiology, and as Dr. Steph could undoubtedly tell us, he correctly deduced the organisation of the nervous system. His studies also took him into metallurgy, until a religious fervour overcame him and he pursued more spiritual work, forming a religious movement termed the New Church. There was, sadly, no longer room for a hovercraft in his life, and his concept would remain forever on the drawing board. Travelling forward in time on a near frictionless cushion of air, we discover that Dagobert Müller von Tarmamuth, a sharp-witted and clever Austro-Hungarian naval officer who was perhaps better known for developing ways of sinking boats with torpedoes than building ones that hovered. This is all very apt as the best ever reference for a hovercraft or Luftkissenfahrzeug 
comes from the Monty Python's Dirty Hungarian Phrasebook sketch. Mein Luftkissenfahrzeug ist voller Aale. My hovercraft is full of eels. His 1916 air pillow boat, a Luftkissengliedboot, was a great concept in fast attack boats. Shaped like a deep aerofoil, about 4 meters, that's 13 foot wide, and about three times that in length, it was a forerunner of later ground-effect vehicles. In the 1870s, the British shipbuilder Sir John Isaac Thornycroft, well known for building early motor torpedo boats, had already come up with the idea of using air directed under a boat's hull to lift it out of the water to increase speed and reduce drag, which he called a hovercraft. His design involved a hollow-bottomed boat filled with compressed air, and this effort was followed by a Swedish engineer, Hans Deinsen, who added flexible rubber cushion seals to his design. The difference with Dagobert's Glitboot was that it employed an extra engine mounted in a duct which forced air directly into a chamber partially enclosed by the sides of the craft, increasing the pressure of air beneath his structure and increasing its efficiency. Indeed, it could reach 32 knots, and because it ran across the surface of the water, it could avoid torpedoes and mines. Sadly, it didn't have enough clearance to cope with rough water, and was not easy to steer. These fast boats were all more properly described as ground-effect vehicles, and were incapable of hovering while stationary, or travelling over land. As such, they can only be considered a distant cousin of the true hovercraft. So, what constitutes a proper hovercraft? For most people, it's a vehicle that is lifted on a cushion of air and is capable of travelling over land, water, mud, ice, tarmac, sand and many other flattish surfaces, but isn't designed to fly over cliffs, climb trees or come to that scale mountains. It classically employs a blower of some kind to direct a large volume of air below the hull such that the pressure there exceeds that of the ambient air. This causes the hull to float above the running surface. The region of trapped air that the cushion-glide vehicle thing floats on is called the plenum chamber derived from the Latin plenus, meaning filled or full, and was coined in the 17th century as an opposite to vacuum, so that all things were either plenum or vacuum. The plenum chamber is covered on top by the hull and on the sides by a skirt, and the increased pressure created by the blower presses on all sides equally. This includes the ground under the machine. When the pressure exceeds the weight of the air vehicle thing, it pushes the ground away and rises up. In this floating state, the hover cushion glide air vehicle thing is held completely out of the water or above the ground, ice, mud, tarmac, sand or whatever, and is supported solely by the pressure of air within the plenum chamber. There are quite a few who can take some credit for inventing this odd state of affairs. We must first acknowledge Konstantin Salkovich, the man who did the maths in around 1926. He went on to less important work, such as a way to calculate the minimum horizontal speed to achieve orbit around the Earth using multi-staged rockets, 
then his books on rocketry would be much studied by Werner von Braun, but his work on the hovercraft was obviously his crowning achievement and the pinnacle of his career. Around 1930, Andrew Kircher of the Ford Motor Company, vice president for engineering and research, apparently conceived the idea of a hover car, but it wouldn't actually make an appearance for some 20 years, and then only as an advert in Boy's Life magazine. The Mac 1 and its smaller scooter variant, the Lever Scooter, would eventually be mocked up as concept vehicles, but were perhaps limited in real-life applications, as they only rose to a quarter of an inch in the air, a few millimetres, and would be defeated by obstacles higher than that. In 1937, a team of Soviet engineers, led by Vladimir Israelovich Lekov, designed the L-1 hovering tank. Weighing a mere eight and a half tons, this weapon of war was armoured with 13 mil steel plates and carried a 303 machine gun. It was going to wreak havoc at 73 miles an hour up and down swampy, sandy and waterbound areas where other vehicles couldn't travel. It made it to a quarter-scale model, but no further. In the same year as the... Known in the West as the amphibious flying tank was developed and discarded, the Finnish aero engineer Toivo J. Cario was developing a prototype surface sora. The Finnish device included a lift engine blowing air into a flexible envelope, but it was soon finished when funding dried up. The next on the list was the Glide-mobile, the American engineer Charles Fletcher's idea. His air-cushioned vehicle looked remarkably similar to modern racing hovercraft and Fletcher was no slouch in the inventing game. He had a BA in aeronautical engineering from New York University and was the president of a manufacturing company. He contributed to the North American X-15 hypersonic experimental aircraft and worked on the test version of the Lunar Landing Module, holding 15 patents on vertical lift and rocket motors alone. The Glidemobile looks remarkably like later hovercraft designs, with a small open cockpit in front of a large ducted lift engine. From the plenum chamber, there are four sets of louvres, one at each corner, that can direct air for steering and propulsion, unlike better designs which employ separate thrust engines. Fletcher's ideas were hampered somewhat by the American military during the Second World War when they appropriated his design, classified it, and prevented him from taking out a patent. However, the military did nothing to develop the idea, and it wasn't until 1985 when a lawsuit was brought by British Hovercraft Limited against the United States, seeking royalties of $104 million that proof was sought. The US Department of Justice found an old edition of Design News, which featured an article on Fletcher's hovercraft, and Fletcher himself was tracked down. 
He produced records on the project, which included 16mm films of the Glidemobile, conceptual drawings, subsequent work, model flight trials, and various news articles, which made it somewhat impossible for British hovercraft to prove their case. Melville Beardsley was another American who hovered around the edges of air cushion vehicle design. An ex-Army Air Corps pilot, he worked on a Navy hydrofoil project in California in the 50s, and his work led him to autonomously develop a practical hovercraft utilising a skirt and a form of peripheral airflow which is essential for efficient hovering. A patent dispute developed in the 60s between Beardsley and a British inventor, and Beardsley's patent rights were purchased from him. Despite this, he continued to develop ACVs, including one called Little Skimmer, and he later worked with the Naval Ship Research and Development Centre on the large ACVs that would be used by the US military. Despite all these earlier efforts, though, the first man who had the drive, the engineering skill and the determination to make a truly successful go at developing the hovercraft into a practical and successful prospect was Sir Christopher Sidney Cockerell. Like the other inventors, engineers, scientists and mathematicians mentioned, Sir Christopher was no one-trick pony. He had been well-educated, matriculating at Peterhouse and reading mechanical engineering at Cambridge, returning later to study radio and electronics. He worked at the Radio Research Company and then for Marconi, leading a research team at the famous Rittle Hut, the home of experimental radio transmissions to aircraft in 1919 and trial broadcasts to the British public in 1922. He worked on many systems, including radar, radio location technology and the first equipment used by the BBC in Alexandra Palace. After leaving Marconi, he bought a small boat and caravan hire company called a Ripple Craft, and like those who went before, began to experiment in ways of making his boats go faster and more efficiently by partly raising them out of the water. His breakthrough came when, independent of other inventors, he designed a craft that could rise completely out of the water. He moved away from the idea of creating a large plenum chamber under the craft to channeling a narrow jet of air around the perimeter of the hull, creating what he called a momentum curtain. This wall of fast-moving air would limit the amount of pressure that could leak out, maintaining a cushion of air that could support the craft with a much smaller engine. His initial modest experiments were made using a couple of tin cans and a vacuum cleaner, but the results encouraged him to move forwards. It took him several years and so much money that he was forced to sell personal possessions to fund his research, but by 1955 he had a working model built and had filed for his first hovercraft patent, number GB854211. The patent included such phrases as a vehicle which comprises beans for causing a fluid to issue from the lower part of the vehicle so as to result in the formation of a pressurised cushion or cushions by which the vehicle is wholly or partly supported. 
like Fletcher's Glidemobile, the British military put Cockerell's hovercraft on the secret list. But he later joked that, The Navy said it was a plane, not a boat. The Air Force said it was a boat, not a plane. The Army was plane not interested. Now declassified, Sir Christopher convinced the National Research Development Council to fund the hovercraft development, and they placed a contract with Saunders Row, the flying boat and marine craft manufacturer, to construct the Saunders Row Nautical One, SRN1, the world's first practical hovercraft. It first took to the air, albeit not very high, in June 1959, and the very next month it made its famed and successful crossing of the English Channel, proving its effectiveness as a high-speed transport option for both land and sea. The Duke of Edinburgh visited the company and persuaded the chief test pilot to let him take the controls. He flew it so fast that the machine's bow was dished a little by the pressure of water, damage that was never repaired and was from then on affectionately referred to as the Royal Dent. At a cruising height of around 9 inches, that's 23 centimetres, later versions would benefit from a double-walled extension of the sides, a four-foot-high rubberized skirt and subsequent development of slots known as fingers equipped with individual extensions that could accommodate obstacles without deforming. Even before the modifications, the hovercraft could traverse obstacles four feet, that's over a metre high, as high as the level of the deck. With these improvements, military forces of many countries took an interest, as did search and rescue organisations and commercial operations. The very first model, the SRN-1, proved capable of carrying two crew and a complement of 12 marines, but later versions had a much improved performance. The company Hover Travel ordered first a 38, then 98, and finally a 130-seat hovercraft. As of 2004, they had moved over 20 million passengers in comfort and safety. Hover Lloyd ran a car-carrying version that took 30 cars and 254 passengers between Dover in England and Calais and Boulogne in France. Later versions could carry nearly double these numbers, and in a speedy hovercraft, the crossing to France took a mere 30 minutes. The early success of the hovercraft was blunted by increased fuel prices and competition from fast catamarans and more economical ferries. The building of the cross-channel tunnel added additional competition. Despite this, the hovercraft has been put to many other, often niche, uses. Providing transport over difficult terrain is a speciality of the hovercraft, and they are often used as rescue boats. They can be encountered as far afield as Madagascar and Alaska, and many places in between. In the military, their abilities provide the unique function of being able to carry troops and tanks from the sea, a river, or marsh, up onto dry land and beyond. As such, they've been employed by the British Marines, the US Navy, the Finns, the Iranians, Japanese, Chinese, and in great numbers by Soviet forces. 
the Soviet Zuba-class air-cushioned landing craft is the world's largest, displacing 555 tonnes. Other uses of hovering technology can still be seen everywhere, from hovering transport flatbeds, hovering lawnmowers, recreational one-man racing hovercraft, and even to the traditional English Lord's Cricket Ground, which has a hovering rain cover that can be moved easily and rapidly into position to protect the hallowed turf. However, the hovercraft has never really taken off, so to speak, and is something of a rare beast. In an interview before his passing in 1999, Sir Christopher remarked on the lack of financial success the hovercraft bought him. It would have been nice, he said, to treat my wife to dinner once in a while. Actually, his patents for the hovercraft and other inventions did provide what he conceded was a reasonable living, but they certainly didn't make him a fortune. Another great one. Very hovery this time. Yeah, poor old, poor old Cockerell. I mean, he actually spent an awful lot of money trying to protect patents, uh, only to discover that, in fact, he wasn't necessarily the first, the inventor of the hovercraft in the first place. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was a fantastic piece of kit. And uh, a bit like the gyrocopter is uh, I covered a while back, is a, a bit of a one-off. Um, mm. In fact, I do remember as an air cadet when I was a, you know, a fourteen-year-old, uh, we built one at our squadron. We used to fly it around the parade ground. It was great fun. Now, did you do this story just because you could use the phrase uh, "my hovercraft is full of eels"? Is that the excuse. <laughs> yeah, that's probably part of the yes. Reason. I, <laughs> okay. I'm, yes, you're you're absolutely right. Yep, my Lufkus and Farzoik. I Marcus says it quickly. I don't know. I I think I'm mm-hmm. probably rather stilted when I see it's Fulmit Island, but uh, yeah. Um, but you're I referring to the official guide, like right? From Monty Python? Yes, yes, the official mm-hmm. Hungarian, dirty Hungarian guidebook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I mean, um, a lot of forces have decided to build big uh, hovercraft for, uh, uh, as landing craft, and from that point of view, they're great. The trouble is they're damn noisy mm-hmm. and not very uh, stealthy, um, but uh, they have the great advantage of being able to go straight out of the uh, of off an ocean into a marshland and then carry on up the beaches and and whatever so you know in the right place they they're a fantastically capable machine when i fly into norfolk you know? uh, virginia beach especially landing to the southwest we fly right over the top of i think it's called little creek it's a u.s navy u.s marine corps base of those lcats and they they must have i don't know uh 30 at least 30 of them over there oh, wow. uh, it's a it's a huge complex of uh, hovercraft down there yeah i'm sorry go yeah. ahead max oh and i would certainly get one if i could get one like the l1 tank with the machine gun i think that would be very oh, handy for nice. driving on the highways and you know getting where you need to go in a hurry <laughs> very good for no, no more barriers obstacles it's fine. just Absolutely. bump everybody out of the way or use the gun if you need 73 to. miles an hour it works yeah <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> no, no, there, there were plenty of uh, suggestions as to the best way to employ this uh, very efficiently. Um, and actually, a hover train would be a great idea because uh, the flatter the surface, uh, the more efficient is the cushion and the less power you need to make hmm. the uh, hovercraft hover. Um, but uh, I think maglev um, hovering became more um, interesting rather than a, a noisy, because they are damn noisy. <laughs> hovercraft. Uh, but uh, we race them. I don't know if you have hovercraft racing in the States, but we have that in the UK. Um, no, they have familiar people. with that. No. 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 We have Formula One race, because they're, they're pretty hard to steer, and they're quite severely affected by a crosswind. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fun to watch. So you start in one lane, and you end up... <laughs> Not yeah. even on the track anymore. Just Very easily, I think. Yes. Oh, wait a minute, we do have those. Up in the turns. No. Um, bumper cars, I think we have those. <laughs> yeah. We do, right? yeah. Bumper yeah. cars. Uh-huh. Excellent. Yeah. Similar Excellent. technology. <laughs> yeah. But we, we, we've all seen the hover mowers and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, I used to own one, a fly mow. So, uh, yeah, it's surprising. You and your uh, lawnmower technology, technology we, Nick. He's, he's got a robot lawnmower that mows. He's got like the Roomba lawnmower. Like, <laughs> well, actually, someone it did invent a, uh, a hovering um, vacuum cleaner, but then they realised that it was rather self-defeating because it blew th- <laughs> it blew the dirt around the room. Here, I've cleaned your mess. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. There's nothing it's in the now bag. in all of the corners of your house. <laughs> Don't Are you confusing it. that with the Hoover vacuum cleaner, perhaps? Uh, oh, no, I know all about Hoover. Yes, yes. But it's very good, very close. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, a bit of fun. I hope you don't mind. Oh, that was, that that was, was good. I love hovercraft. Okay. Um, let's go back to our feedback uh, notebook. And uh, I believe we left off at number three from AJ Parr. He uh, sent us some audio feedback in regarding his future career in aviation. So let's hear what uh, AJ has to say. Hello, airline pilot guy crew. My name is AJ Parr and I am a 17 year old male that has found a love for aviation. Now I've traveled since I was as young as I can remember, ever since I was born and old enough to fly in a plane, my family would send me on a plane back to back and forth through certain par- places. And I bought my own plane tickets periodically throughout the years. And um, I just personally, I just love flying. I love being a passenger and I'd love to be able to do that as a career for the rest of my life. And well, <clears throat> I found you guys' podcast a few months ago and I listened to it every single Monday and every day of the week that I can while I'm working my electrician job. Currently, I am a apprentice electrician at Secular Electric down in Springfield, Missouri, and um, I became an electrician initially to have like a trade job under my belt. And well, my whole plan with everything that's going on is I know with the aviation career path right now, it's kind of weird with you know the whole pandemic going on and such, and it's just a little rough right now. My plan is I'm going to go through these next five years of being an apprentice electrician to get my journeyman's so I'll never be out of a job. And then I'm going to go to a uh, fast track fight school for another two or so years to get all my qualifications, my flight hours and all that stuff and start my career to become a pilot. I've done a lot of research into this and I just got done listening to um, number podcast number 460 does love APG, I believe it's called. And um, I noticed a post 
postman kind of had some of the same questions I did and you guys can give really concrete answers, which I understand. But I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions for like my situation, since I already have this background job that I'm trying to get a career in and get a startup in and then go to fast track school. So I wouldn't have a degree, but I'd also have something really good to fall back on. I'm just curious if you guys think that is a, like a good idea or not, or if you still suggest or still more leaning towards going to, you know, get a degree five, six years, spend that time. Um, but my thought process is I'm thinking within the next couple, couple of years, the aviation, aviation industry should pick up. I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, it's already picking them now from what I can tell. I was, I mean, I was taking planes whenever this pandemic stuff first started happening and it was just crazy to see. It was definitely, definitely an interesting experience. But um, yeah, I guess it's just my question. So I know you guys kind of answered a lot of those questions with the uh, postman, but I was curious for a 17-year-old male that is already getting like a career in a trade to start off, what you guys would suggest. But um, love to hear your feedback. Thank you. Okay. I think we got it. And I don't know whatever what everybody else is going to say about this, but I think that, uh, his plan is kind of a good plan. Uh, especially, you know, learning a trade, uh, is so important and especially in today's world and, uh, having that to fall back upon, uh, if the, the whole aviation thing doesn't work out, the only part of it that, uh, you know, it really depends on projecting out seven years from now or whatever, Um, you know, what the major airlines are going to be requiring at that point for a college degree or not. And, uh, I think that would be the only, for me, wild card or question mark regarding your plan. But overall, I think it's kind of a solid plan. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Steph? So I think when we hit, when we kind of struggle to give people advice in this realm, it's because people don't have a concrete plan and they're looking at a lot of different options all at once. And it's very hard to say, oh, for you, this is the absolute right best thing to do. Or if I was in your situation, it's hard to make generalizations or, or take something very general and make a very specific recommendation from it. Um, but in your case, AJ, I think you've already got a very specific plan and it's much easier to attain goals when you have a plan laid out already and it sounds like you very much do um i like your idea of uh, you know continuing on the trade that you're in right now get your journeyman's you know that's a that's five years out so you're 17 now 18 19 20 22 um so that's that's perfect time i think to start flight training and i think a lot is going to change in the world five years from now and you'll have a lot better sense of um what some of those requirements might be and just because you're doing um electrician trade now doesn't mean that if you did find yourself in the situation of needing a degree at some point you wouldn't be able to continue to work to, to towards that while you're doing your flight training as well um, that's certainly something that people do as well but it's nice to have that ability to continue to earn income at the same time so my my two cents max do you have any feelings one way or another with this yeah, definitely. I think it makes a lot of sense to have something to fall back on to. Uh, certainly, you know, those folks who are furloughed right now that have uh, things to fall back on are, you know, faring, you know, better than than those who don't. Uh, I think, and you'd have to, you know, check me on this. I think 
if you look at the four legacy carriers, uh, these days aren't most of them leaning toward four-year degrees when they're yes. they're hiring. They are yeah. still mm-hmm. yes. So, yeah, you might make it into the to the regionals, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, your goal is to fly with one of the big four carriers, then you'll definitely want to fit that four-year degree in uh, somewhere. And you could, you know, start, you know, for example, a community college earning credits now. You don't have to wait and do it all in one shot. Mm-hmm. Good point. Because it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily matter really what the degree is in. It's more of like a checkbox, like a college degree. I have that, you know. And, you know, we talked about this before pandemic times when we were very much looking at that pilot shortage coming up. And I still think that it's a very realistic possibility that as things turn around, if um, things, you know, we've seen trends going in the right direction, obviously pretty short term data here. But if things continue to move in the right direction, um, hopefully that leads to a quicker turnaround than perhaps folks are thinking. And then I think you're going to be faced again with that same pilot shortage at some point, because now you've uh, a lot of these airlines have provided early retirement opportunities to, to folks who are close to that age range. There haven't been as many people coming up through flight training in the past year or so. Um, so I, I, I think your plan is good. And I think time will tell on that college degree component of it, if that's going to be continue to be something that's required or not. And I think um, all of this really centers around the, the point that we're talking about the, uh, the U S situation and shortage and our domestic market. Um, sure. You know, improving more rapidly than perhaps they think it will. So um, it's definitely not true in other parts of the world. I mean, those are going to be different stories that we really don't know really. What yeah, I, I agree, Jeff. Uh, the Far East and Europe are lagging way behind the States in the aviation recovery, um, mainly because, um, you know, uh, we're not all one country uh, and all flying is international and every country has its own rules, regulations, and a lot have closed their borders. So it's going to be uh, quite a while before uh, we see the same recovery in aviation that you have started to see. Um, I like uh, the idea that um, our fine listener, uh, AJ, is, um, is, is going for a trade. Uh, and I actually think it doesn't, you, you you're going to be a pilot, okay? This the trade you have will be your fallback as a short term way of keeping body and soul together until you can get another flying job. So from that point of view, I think it's fantastic that you'll have you know become an electrician or a plumber or whatever it is that you you know people decide to do. Um, a, a degree, a college degree, doesn't give you a job. It makes you more employable, perhaps, but it's not a job. So if you've got if you've got a qualification like electrician, uh, everyone always needs those guys. So I think that's uh, a, a great idea. Um, my concern is the same as yours, and for everyone's that uh, yeah, the majors will probably be uh, much happier with uh, someone with a degree and like more. You'll more likely to get a job there, but. That that's not the be all and end all of aviation. There are plenty of guys that do their entire careers in the regionals or in um, exec jet 
type jobs, lots and lots of aviation jobs out there where they may not give two hoots about, uh, you know, your education, particularly if you've had four or five years worth of commercial flying already, albeit in smaller aircraft, they may go, well, that, you know, you're obviously a good a good pilot. You've proved yourself. Uh, we don't really care what your education was. Uh, you, you can fly an airplane. So that may be enough. So I think uh, we all are kind of bullish on your plan right now, AJ, and uh, would love to continue to hear how you progress in this. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll hear some good news from you in the future. Or I was going to say, if, if the if the electrician or the flying thing doesn't work out, you would make a at least a great med student because every patient um, history presentation starts out with age and gender. So, seventeen year old male. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm listening to <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to someone present a patient to me. So that was very good. <laughs> you get the uh, seal of approval from Doctor Steph. Yes, excellent. Um, let's see how Jonathan does with Steph's seal of approval. Um, John, now I have to admit, um, he, he sent this feedback in, um, a few weeks back. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking that it had something to do with the country of India and, uh, and, and cows and their reverence for cows, because it says, Jonathan, Holy cow rescue. <laughs> it, it, it has nothing to do with India at all or cows actually. Or cows. Yeah. yeah. He says, uh, Dear Captain Jeff and crew, greetings from Minneapolis. Our weather seems to have leaked all over the middle part of the country. I guess you remember a few weeks back, it was pretty seriously uh, yucky, uh, wintry. Um, yeah, cold, with some seriously negative impacts on everyone, including aviation. I saw um, Houston, Austin, and Dallas all had extended closures. We'll try and get it corralled back up here again just as quick as we can. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Looks like they've done that. Um, speaking of cold and snow, I was absolutely amazed by this video of a French helicopter pilot in the, in this video circulating on Twitter, um, uh, 7,000 feet up a mountain to a rescue, to rescue an injured skier and then hovering practically against the snow. Incredible. Hope you're all safe, well, and warm. Now I will say that, uh, it is incredible footage, uh, but it was, uh, back in 2019, I believe, but it doesn't doesn't make it any less spectacular actually. So I'm going to play a little bit of this. If you guys uh, can bear with me here on this video file. We're now a looking very distressed at a, looking skier with a yeah, broken check leg. With his leg and a fine splint. Yep, and, uh, oh yeah. Doctors the attending, paramedics. looking up towards the helicopter, nodding at the pilot. They're wearing helmets uh, and ski goggles. Yeah. Still doing and there's, the same. There's the victim. A nice red hat on. Very easy to see. I love those inflatable splints. They're yeah, very they're clever, nice. aren't they? Oh, the helicopter's back away. again. <laughs> Coming back in again. Oh, it's going to show the approach oh. from a different angle. Is someone going to commit Here, suicide and jump from the side? Impressive. Oh, oh wow. Oh, wow. 
Uh, oh, right. He's yeah. led his front ski against the snow. He's level. The slope is at about 45 degrees, and his blades are nearly kicking up the slope in front of him. Kind of like I guess the nose and the snow is front. soft, so if the blade yeah. hits it, it's. I don't know, that seems awfully close. Well, it looks yeah, about the... nine inches from the from the nose yeah. and the similar distance from the blades. He's just basically go. parked, pressed himself up against this sloping snow. Just the nose and the front end of the skis kissing the mountain. Wow. That that last view was by far the most most impressive. Uh... Yeah, the angle uh, that the helicopter and the blades were against the slope of the mountain. Yeah. So, hey, um, if you didn't get a chance to see the video, uh, you should, we'll have the link to it in the show notes, but quite a, quite a skill there. And I guess uh, based on the comments that I read um, regarding this video, that this is something that they practice a lot and people that these uh, the French mountain police and other countries uh, in the Alps, uh, they're all trained on how to do this kind of thing. So it's pretty amazing. Well, I don't know. I've just uh, read that uh, the boss of uh, Dassault um, yes. was killed in his mm -hmm. helicopter doing mm -hmm. little more than getting airborne from a slightly different spot of his garden and hit some trees. So uh, my feeling is um, I've seen videos of uh, MI8s, you know, the NATO hip up there in the Himalayas um, uh, crashing picking up trying to pick up people who've you know got injuries climbing the mountain crashing and it, instead of having one injured person you've now got five injured people or however many are involved in the subsequent crash um if you've broken your leg it's not necessarily going to kill you in the next few hours. I, mean, I understand there could be complications, and I don't know exactly what this guy had wrong with him, but um, to me, getting him to a position a kilometre down the slope, um, even if it might be painful, is preferable to taking the the obvious risk that this pilot did because now you've got three people very close to a helicopter plus the crew on board plus the survivor uh and if he had made a mistake of only a few inches because we can see how close he is to the actual uh, slope um this could have been a damn disaster so my feeling is you are on the side the side of safety and you, you find a decent landing spot yeah land on a slope by all means but this to me looks extreme I don't know. That's, that's the way it appears thing. but i guess safety you know the definition is what risk versus versus benefit yeah and, and um, I, I think at this yeah. point the graphs it, had crossed and it was mm -hmm. just going way too on one side and the, the re reward versus benefit uh, I think was probably, you know, um, I suppose everyone in that situation the, the though is, has, has calculated their risks. You know, you've got the, the skiers who have calculated their risk of potential injury. You've got the flight crew there who are training to do these particular types of, of rescue and they know what the, the risks are as well. I'm not disagreeing with you, Nick. I'm just mm -hmm. saying everyone's calculated their risks at this point. 
So. Yeah, uh, until someone makes a mistake and then all of a sudden you get, oh, that, and perhaps my calculation wasn't quite right. Perhaps, perhaps we should have got that guy down to a, a, a better Everything about that spot. video made me completely nervous, I just want to say. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I, I mean, was not okay with watching any of that, but... Um, I mean, it made great it television, did get me wrong. Yeah, it was very I would impressive. not be doing... Impressive, Probably any of those things. Impressive skills, but I feel the same way. It's just like I, the whole time I was looking at it thinking, really, is it worth the risk just to get this one skier who is an awful, in an awful lot of pain? We understand that, but, you know, is this the best use of resources and, and uh, exposure to risk? I, I don't know. Uh, apparently, they think it is. Oh. I'm interested to know what Max thinks. Well, all I can say is when I go skiing, it's usually not on a slope quite that steep. So. <laughs> yeah, I was I was skiing a few weeks ago, and I didn't. Well, aside from the the one uh, miscalculation we had, um, where we took a, a chairlift to the top and did not realize that the weather conditions were wildly different than what they were on the other side of the mountain, um, did not put myself in any type of danger like that. At least I hope not. But the, the visibility of, you know, 10 feet was a lot of fun at the top, I'll say. Not. And I just want to, again, uh, confirm that uh, this had nothing to do with um, India and uh, cow worship. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Ian, I think, um, sorry, Neil makes the, the point um, that, you know, it is a mm -hmm. principle to assess the danger and don't put yourself. Because had there been a crash, how the hell do you get all the injured people out of there? Um, you know, the first crash was enough. Uh, the second crash, um, you know, uh -huh. um, it might, might have been on the cards if they'd had a, a serious problem. Yeah. Interesting ethical questions. Yeah. yeah. Difficult. Uh, Best be answered fair, by some other podcasts. Absolutely. And to be fair, we weren't there. I certainly wasn't no. there. So Airplane geeks. Uh, I think I, they should take up this. I think they should tackle oh, this. Yeah, yes, should tackle it. this. Yes. The <laughs> next episode. Okay. Good man. I'd be interested to know what you say. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, Me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, five. Larry. Uh, end of an era for now. Um, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> a lot of people heard about this news a few weeks back. Um, the decision was made uh, to um, end again. Speedbird one. Um, this is from Larry Gregory. He never flew on Concorde, but was a, on a flight next in line when it took off. Talk about noise and orange slash brown exhaust. Our plane was buffeted by the backwash from its engines as it roared down the runway. I always enjoyed Paris and was able to fly out of all three major airports back in the day. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, Orly, and what's LBG? I'm not sure. Mm. Any, any guesses? Well, anyway, oh. LBG is one of the ones that Larry flew out of <laughs> back in the day. Le Bourget. Le Bourget, okay. Um, so uh, this article from... Airways Magazine uh, talks about the fact that the latest incarnation of uh, Speedbird 1 was, of course, not as sexy as the Concorde. Uh, it was a, what, a 318 or 319, I think, uh, Airbus? Um, a318. And I've tried to take this flight three times in the past, like, two and a half years. And yeah. each time it has been canceled or changed in some way or another. So I'm 
a little miffed now that I'm not oh. going to get my chance to fly on the 318 from uh, JFK into London City because I thought that would kind of be fun. Yeah, it would so. be. Um, this article talks about... I've, I've booked it three times. Actually had it booked, ticket hmm. in hand, not able to take the flight. Have you lost any money on it? Uh, at the moment, there's quite a bit of money sitting in my American Airlines account over the last one that was canceled. Ah. But I'll figure out a way to use it. It's okay. I'm sure All's well. you will. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, there's a photo in this of um, London City Airport, and I never realized how <laughs> uh, demanding an airport that must be to land on, or a runway to land on there. It's just like a little island in the middle of a channel. Little island. I yeah, think it's got absolutely. a bit of a steep uh, glide slope on the mm -hmm. approach. I knew that. Yeah, um, like I've only ever taken out, a, taken off a out of London City as a passenger. I've never been on a flight landing there. But. And bear in mind that right over your head uh, is the main approach to the Heathrow. runways into Heathrow, the two yeah. sevens, left and right. Uh, so you've got guys picking up the ILS at uh, two or three thousand feet right over your head there. So they're very limited in the height they can come in. Mm -hmm. um, very demanding and the guys and girls need to be very well trained um the only thing i had against this was calling it speedbird one because that's a classic call sign yeah uh and to put it onto the shortest dumpiest ugliest <laughs> little yeah, the 318 is not exactly the uh, now to be so fair this 318 is all business class so it's something like 18 seats total still doesn't make it's it look any prettier not the concord <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Okay. It still yeah. looks like a slough. They could have they could have kept the flight and just called it Speedbird five thousand twenty seven or something. Yeah, they could have given it a fancy name rather than a yeah. number even. But uh, now you're right. I uh, it was a lovely concept, but it, it seriously over the last few years it had been um, cancelled frequently, not making its way. Um, monetarily, so cancelled frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. as Steph has discovered. <laughs> Anecdotal evidence here. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. uh, moving on. Chris Cheatwood, the guru. Uh, oh, by the way, thank you, Larry, for that. If you want to learn or read more about the um, end of an era uh, article, we'll have that in the show notes. Chris Cheatwood, number six, says, um, Oh, this is, you know what? I'm not going to do this because last time I played a video, it didn't work out very well. So we're going to skip six. Um, we're going to hit seven. And this is from Rob Legal. He says, good day, crew. This made me think of the coffee fund. Segway gold. <laughs> Thank you. We always appreciate our segways here. This is from simpleflying.com. And uh, it's uh, mostly pictures. So that means I should probably start trying to share uh, some pictures of this um, coffee shop. Uh, which happens to be built inside of an Airbus A380, and uh, looks like a pretty interesting place. It's a, if you're in Thailand, it might be convenient for you. Uh, if not, it might be kind of a haul to uh, to visit. Uh, let's see here. It's yes. an A330. Mm -hmm. um, the $333,000 A330. Why do I not see that? Here we go. Well, I want to fly on that A330 with all that food. <laughs> okay, here we go. Did you eat dinner tonight, Nick? <laughs> not I'm a very big one myself. Oh, I'm kind of hungry, too. 
So this is the inside of the A330. And uh, let me scroll it down a little bit. This is where it is in Thailand, just in case you happen to be in the, in the neighborhood. Actually, this is the only place that I've ever been to, not this coffee shop, but this um, city or slash airport, uh, Utapau, Thailand. It's the only place that I've ever set foot in Thailand. Uh, when I was in the mm. U.S. Air Force, we stopped there for fuel for some reason. I don't know why. They said it's a flag stop or something. In other words, wave the American flag, let everybody know we're still here and supporting them or something like that. Anyway, uh, here's a picture of the outside of the A330, uh, the forward section, and some air stairs. Uh, if Jen Niffer is with us, she'll probably be pretty excited about that photo right there. That's not a truck. That's true. Thank you, Liz. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, okay, maybe not. She'll probably be let down by that. Um, again, the inside, and they got a whole bunch of tables and uh, love seats and that sort of thing. It looks huge um, without all the normal um, across seats. I know. Quite honestly. Spacious. I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, I, I flew in for ages and uh, I always thought they were cramped, horrible little aeroplanes, but actually they look pretty big, don't they? <laughs> yeah, when you take most of the seats out, I guess it looks pretty yeah. big. Here's a picture of the tail. Coffee War. I'm not sure why they named it that. Um, and this is what it looked like before uh, the entrepreneur uh, purchased uh, the A330 for the coffee shop, uh, Thai Airways um, 330. Hmm. So that was kind of interesting. I like it. I'm a big fan of coffee shops slash food uh, establishments slash bars inside aircraft. Me too. Has friends. anyone else been yeah. to the, the TWA hotel at JFK? I have not, not yet. Because no. you can go in the Super Connie and they have a bar set up in there. That's going to be an APG meetup at some point when, you know, the world recovers the from returns. this, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, item 11 uh, from Brian and also from Stephen Ivey. He also sent uh, a similar piece of feedback regarding this episode. It says, hello, APG crew. This is a very funny clip of an ATC or live ATC posted by the pilot who found himself in quite a pickle. You may already know about this as fly underscore with underscore Bruno. Uh, He has 22,000 followers on his Instagram, but he finds himself asking for help via the common traffic advisory frequency, the CTAF frequency at a local airport on Long Island. Definitely worth a listen. And so now we'll try this again. Fingers crossed. And uh, we'll hope that we can uh, hear. It's mostly audio, so I don't think we're going to have a problem with the uh, video, hopefully. Um, Here we go. And open and should start playing. Uh, Blue Team Express, take anybody on the frequency? Hey, affirmative. Uh, Who's that? Oh, this guy off 9934. Are you in the air or on the ground? We are currently in the air. We're about uh, five miles to the northeast of the field. We're going to be doing the practice RNAV uh, Alpha insert located. Are you landing? Uh, negative. We're just going to be doing a practice approach. Oh, okay, that's fine. I have an issue here on the ground and was wondering if there was anybody on the frequency here. What's that? Uh, anyway, we can help? Uh, actually, uh, this is this might be funny, but I'm locked inside my plane. The latch kind of 
Uh, I don't know, got stuck, and I can't get out. I don't know if there's anybody here. Uh, there's nobody on the frequency, I guess. Oh, uh, okay, we can come out the out if you like now. You mean, would you land? Absolutely. Oh, I would really appreciate that. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, man. That's definitely a first for me. For me, too, man. I really appreciate the help. <laughs> So, uh, so Max, well, those guys tell us the truth. Okay, we'll just, we'll Have you ever locked yourself into an airplane? You know, I haven't, and I can only really remember one other story that did occur like this. I remember somebody had to pass the key out through that little tiny uh, window that opens on the left side of a piper so that they could get someone on the outside to uh, unlock the airplane with their key. And it was a similar kind of situation. You know, something happened with a latch, and they were locked inside. So, yeah, it does happen. I think that happened to that, uh, was it the cat on the airplane? Not not the one from the news today, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a cat inside the That was in Israel. Israel, was yeah. In, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. What, the, the cat lost to... his key? I don't remember that yes, part of the story. True. You don't remember the cat was, was stuck in the aircraft yeah. and kind of destroyed the, the dash? Yeah. Right, but uh, wow. did the cat get on ATC and ask anybody if it was in the pattern to come in and well, Open the door. The cat had yeah, it, opposable it was, thumbs was, and <laughs> okay. I don't okay. So again, he might have. He might have. Now, Remember now, that part. <laughs> okay. Get off this frequency. <laughs> he was on guard, but you know. well, hey. <laughs> Speaking of Adis. Runway two seven right, RNAV runway two seven left approaches in use. Also the landing and departing runway two seven center. She's crushing numerous birds on and about the airport. <laughs> Notices to airmen, runway 1836 closed except for taxi. Takeaway Romeo, between the Romeo ramp and runway Niner Center, closed. Archer 2326 Victor, Sanford ground. Turn right, taxi Bravo Kilo, right side taxiways. Right, Bravo Kilo on the right side. And we call it a special thank you to whoever cut the aid. Can you say that again? I'll put it in speaker. We want to say a special thank you to whoever cut the aiders or who was behind the guy cutting the aiders. They did not for about 10 minutes up in the air. Two, three, two, six, six, six. All right, thanks. Uh, my supervisor made it, but I uh, I helped out there. He said, which part? Cuckoo! That's a riot. I came across Sanford. that on live ATC, and I thought that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> that's unique. I appreciate that. Yes, that was definitely sure. a dare. Just, yeah, just, especially just especially oh. when the supervisor is the one that's recording the ATIS. <laughs> that's pretty pretty bold yep. of the non-supervisor to do that, but they must have a great relationship, which is great. Or at that point, he's like, "I'm not recording this again." stays for an hour <laughs> <laughs> or he was one day from retirement so it didn't matter that, too. <laughs> that could be as well yeah all mm. oh, right well you know what folks we still have some uh yay uh liz is happy we still have some feedback left in our feedback notebook and we're going to transfer that of course on to the next show 464 which will hopefully be next week sometime sometime and uh, in the meantime we're going to appoint you toward our website uh, airlinepilotguy.com which is where you can find out more information about the crew and the community and so much more so again airlinepilotguy.com is the place to go to you know learn more stuff and uh, we're also on social media or what what I like to call the social meds 
Jeff calls it the social media. You <laughs> call it the one. social medias, whatever floats your boat. You can find us on Twitter, twitter.com. Uh, we are at APG Crew. You can also find us using that same handle, APG Crew, on Instagram and also on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So we would very much like to see you on the social media feeds. Um, if you want a more in depth, uh, social media experience or pseudo social media experience you can also find us on our slack channels yes i'll leave that to hillel okay let's see if i can um oh you can always count on hillel let's see hang on let's see hillel hillel you have time you have time for slack okay but i'm dripping wet that, that's okay we'll we'll give you a little time to towel off and come over here and tell us all about slack APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Appreciate it. Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? Yes. I do. Please don't touch it. All right. Also, we'd like to big, big, big shout out to our producer, director, Liz Piper in Ontario, Toronto, Canada. Yay. Without Liz, I know it already sounds kind of like a train wreck, but it would be so much worse without without Liz. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> for, there's uh, a lot of work going on. Yeah, now. there's a lot of work. <laughs> we are a lot of work for sure. So uh, thank you, Liz, for all of your help uh, behind the scenes before, after, and during the show. And uh, until, and, and again, thank you, uh, Max, for coming on and, and promoting your new book, the G3000 and G5000 Glass Cockpit Handbook. And how can people find you um because we talked about our social meds but uh, you must be on the social meds too huh oh indeed sure yeah folks can either uh, look for the the book at g3000book.net or maxtruscott.com and then uh, aviationnewstalk.com is the home of uh, my podcast and i want to thank you so much for having me uh, you guys are just so much fun this has been a blast and it's been fun feeling like i'm being a part of the partridge family here with all the square pictures up of <laughs> it's crazy mom dad the kids and Brady, you know, yeah. <laughs> the brady bunch <laughs> it's a story of an aviation family da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh it's, it's been a hoot uh, hopefully you can join us again sometime in the future and until next time wishing you all clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless cheers y'all bye buddy Good night.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I got I fly, oh 